All right, all right, all right. How's everyone doing? I want to thank you guys so much for tuning in to Back to Your Story, a podcast about real people and real stories. Today we had on the legendary Tom O'Neill. He's an investigative journalist and a world-renowned author. You guys probably already know who I'm talking about from him being on the Joe Rogan Experience. Uh, this first half of the podcast was all about Tom and his story, who he is, where he grew up, his life experiences, and more. And the second half was all about his amazing book called Chaos, Charles Manson, the CIA, and the Secret History of the 60s. You know, when reading this book, it really blew my mind because it dives deep into Tom's research about the Tate-LaBianca murders committed by the Manson family in 69. And Tom really questions the helter-skelter scenario argued by lead prosecutor Vincent Bugliosi in the trials and his now infamous book, Helter Skelter. The book's title is a reference to the covert CIA program, Operation Chaos. That being said, it was a real honor to have him on the show. I want you guys to either listen to this or head over to our YouTube channel, watch it. It is amazing. Either way, you guys are really going to love it. If you want to watch it, go to our YouTube channel. Just type in youtube.com backslash back to your story and just look up Tom O'Neill full story. Without further ado, here is the story of Tom O'Neill. From the land of mystery, where dreams become reality, always listening to stories from the past, the present, and the future, this is Back to Your Story. Bada bing, bada boom. All right, all right, all right. Tom O'Neill, how you doing? Pretty good, Brock. How you doing? Fantastic. I want to thank you from the bottom of my heart for coming on the podcast. Certainly, sure. I, um, you know, it, it, this whole experience of doing the podcast has been so amazing, getting to meet all different people from all facets of, all facets of life. Um, but... When I read your book, right, and then I saw the Rogan podcast and then started following, going down the rabbit hole on Instagram, got to know a little bit more about you, um, it was a really great feeling that you wrote back, you know, because there's a lot of people in life when they get a direct message or whatever it is, they, they don't even take the time to even message them. Yeah, I don't think there's, and I got a lot of crazy stuff in the email and DMs and stuff. I don't think I ignore any, at least acknowledge it because I remember what it was like when yeah. I was reaching out trying to get people to talk to me for the book and when they just ignored me, it was worse. Absolutely. Do you mind doing me a favor? Just get a little bit closer. You can move this. Yeah. You can move this all the way over there. Okay. Are you good? There we go. Um, yeah, ab absolutely. I had a I had a awesome girl on last night, uh, Jackie Chu, and she's um, a world renowned hairdresser, model, um, all this really great stuff. And she says that every single message that she gets, mm -hmm. she takes her time to write them back because mm -hmm. what you exactly said, you know, everyone's going through shit, everyone's mm -hmm. struggling, everyone's trying to make things happen. So just that little that 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 little bit, yeah, changes everything. It's easy too. Right? Mm -hmm. I don't, I don't write long yes. responses unless they're warranted, Yeah, but at least I, and I try to respond somehow to whatever is asked of me yeah. 
or you know a lot of it is people who think they have leads and tips and stuff like that i'm sure you get a lot of that yeah especially since that other podcast yeah <laughs> everyone thinks that they're uh, they're an investigative journalist oh yeah yeah and, and actually luckily there are some that are solid and there have been a lot of interesting kind of contacts i've gotten since the book came out and i'm following up some of it uh you know it's probably like 10 percent of everything that comes into me about 10 percent is useful yeah I, yeah well that's then that's sifting through a lot of shit yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> absolutely um do you see yourself doing like something like a follow-up or possibly uh my collaborator was actually in town <clears throat> excuse me last week or the week before and we've been talking about it ever since the book's come out. And I'm a little bit more apprehensive than he is because having spent 20 years of my life, <laughs> I don't know if I want to go back into the same, yeah. you know, hole. But we also, there's a lot of stuff that didn't end up in the book for various reasons. Yeah. And I'd love to get it out there in some form. And he, he wants to, too. I, I won't do it alone because I'm not going to. I don't yeah. doubt it. And with him, he's really on my ass and uh, he, he understands call him the tom whisperer he knows how i think <laughs> and communicate he's just really good at pulling the important stuff out and letting me know what isn't yeah that's and, awesome uh, man you know he worked with prince before me oh shit yeah he was he was writing prince's memoir when prince died Damn. and because of prince's death that's how i got him i inherited him through the agency i worked for because they said look uh after prince died you know the family went crazy and yeah. there were all these battles over the estate he didn't have a will and uh Damn. so they had dan had to stop working on the prince book and he also had a huge challenge because he'd only worked with prince about three months he didn't have a lot of material Damn. and uh he knew he'd have probably a year off before he resumed and it was whatever amount of time it was i think it was like 16 months or so uh that we worked together it was a perfect amount of time just to churn it out finally damn so he was able to take 20 years worth of investigative mm -hmm. journalism and and within 16 months create the masterpiece yep. that you have put out i don't know about masterpiece. no man come on come on yeah i mean i you you got to give yourself a little bit of credit you know you, yeah it's a when anyone puts 20 years worth of effort into one thing that wasn't a choice <laughs> <laughs> well how is that not a choice right you you decide I, well i kept not ending because i needed more constantly yeah and that was the hardest decision was finally like and my agent was telling me from five years to six years and you've got enough you've got enough and i kept saying no no i got i know there's more out there and it was true i mean i probably kept getting important stuff for at least 15 years jeez and then the last couple of years it was mostly just um putting it together and before dan came i was organizing and writing chapters and stuff like that but he really came in and just put them and <laughs> just put it all together yeah. what, what what do you think that is inside of you that could not let go and wanted to continue to push because there are many different type of people in this world, but it takes a certain type of individual that is so hyper-focused on one thing and not to give up mm -hmm. about me. Yeah. What is that? Um, I didn't have a wife or kids or family, you know, and if you don't have a life, yeah, you can do that, which is dangerous. You know, if I had a partner, it might've been, might not have i'm sure it wouldn't have yeah but i could isolate and i don't know how healthy that was i mean there were times i didn't see people for weeks you know when i was working i mean friends I and that. there were holidays i missed with my family weddings i didn't go to because i kept thinking 
it's just around the corner what I needed to get. And if I leave or, or stop this. So, yeah, there was definitely an obsessive quality to it, which I think I, I have. But it was also, you know, I was really, I knew there was information out there and I knew I could get it if I was really focused and persistent. Yeah. And that's how I did get a lot of my interviews because half of the people who talked to me wouldn't talk to me for a long, long time. And then, of course, when they did, then they regretted talking to me. Well, yeah, I, I definitely uh, understand that. Yeah. Um, but that is, that's, that's, that's amazing, man. I mean, to be able to do something like that and not give up, you know, so I, I really commend you on, on doing that. Um, if you look back at your life, right, has there been anything else that you've been so hyper focused on laser focused on? Um, hmm. I mean, the story I did before this, yeah. uh, I, I talk about it a little bit in the book, maybe just a couple of paragraphs. It was an unsolved murder of a woman. You're talking about my life, though. Yeah, your life in general, yeah. And my life in general, I don't think so. Um, I was actually kind of all over the place <laughs> okay. prior to this, and I never had a plan to be a journalist either. That just happened 10 or 15 years before I, I got involved with this. But um, I don't know if I had an obsessive nature about other stuff uh before this before this um real quick because i do want to dive deep into your story and who tom mm -hmm. o'neill is just for people listening right now do you mind sharing a little bit about just chaos and the book that you wrote mm -hmm. well basically i mean you also said why did i you know how did i keep going and why did i keep yeah. going and yeah it took 20 years well if if, if you read the book will you have it if yes people read the book 100 or if you go to amazon and read the reviews the criticism the book gets more than anything else and luckily it's not it's, it's prevalent, but most people seem to like it more than not. But the people who don't like it don't like it because they finish it and they feel there's they haven't gotten the answers they were hoping to get that might have been teased, you know, in yeah. the title of the book. Yes. And that was why I kept going, because I didn't want to have that kind of a book. It wasn't really until something like, uh, I remember seeing Making a Murderer, yeah. the first season of that. And what fascinated me about that was the end of the season the the people who made the film i think it was two women you never know whether or not they think those guys are guilty or innocent they just present yeah. everything and when they did interviews and people asked them what they thought they said we don't want to you know lead our viewers and since it is kind of a great unknown yes. still yeah. i mean in, unless somebody confesses to the murder even though these guys have been convicted it's very it's it's not i had this yeah so when I saw that they could do something like that without a conclusion, I thought, well, I could too, you know, yeah. and we did it. And I think, luckily, I think more people than not love the fact that they have to decide at the end of the book what they think happened. I love that. And just follow the trail that I, you know, the breadcrumb trail I put out there. And you just, you, you put out the facts. Um, yeah. To kind of bring it back though, real quick, we shared kind of the Cliff Notes version of- Of the what, book? Yeah, of the book. Yeah, it's basically a look at the- famous Tate LaBianca murders, and it's through my first-person account of investigating, and I, I began as a magazine story in 99. It was supposed to commemorate what was then going to be the 30th anniversary of the murders for uh, Premier Magazine, which, doesn't like a lot of stuff, doesn't exist anymore. <laughs> yeah. But uh, for two years, they paid me just to report that because I got the editor-in-chief also sucked into kind of my conspiracy world because I started finding out stuff about the official narrative about the case that didn't add up and in a nutshell I, that you know everything kind of broke out in the first 
month or so of reporting, mostly because I was having these interviews with Vince Bugliosi, who prosecuted the the case and then wrote, you know, to this day, the best-selling true crime book of all time about it. And I started finding out that he had been, first I thought it might have been just a little incompetence, you know, he yeah. did a great job prosecuting. And then I thought, oh no, this had to be deliberate. So I found holes in his narrative and holes in stuff he said that he had found. I couldn't find out that he, I couldn't find evidence that he actually had found stuff up. And then I started discovering that he had actually kind of colluded with certain witnesses, written their their testimony yeah. script, and they lied on the stand. So that turned it into a whole different animal and became less a magazine story, evolved into a book. Yeah. And then it kind of bled into other areas of kind of famous events that happened the same, a little before and a little after the Tate-LaBianca murders in 69, and also government programs that were always hidden and uh were never supposed to have been discovered. Uh, I found out that they kind of had a, a influence in some of the events I was writing about. Yes. So it became this unwieldy monster that uh, hopefully people, if they read the whole book, they'll be satisfied <laughs> <laughs> or want more, you know, yeah. like, especially, you know, the phenomenon, <laughs> I hate saying this of, of Charles Manson. Mm. Um, it's, you know, what, what you wrote in the book that you put out, uh, changes the script on everything and really makes you think outside the box. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, and I'm glad of that. You know, I mean, it's really great to get hear from people that they are they're reconsidering things that they thought they just took for granted for forever. You absolutely. Know? And, and I get that from so many people who've read the book. And even, I mean, even yesterday, I got I got, got an email from um, a guy who was in the sheriff's department in the '60s who had encounters with Manson. Then he was in the DA's office as an investigator. You know, they always have investigators um, to prepare, prep for all their trials. Yeah. And he loved the book, and he's been telling all the other sheriffs that are still alive. And I said, well, I interviewed most of those guys, but most of them are dead. He's actually their peer. He's, he, he must be older. I haven't asked him how much how older. But the fact that he loves it, and he didn't take it at all as something that was contrived or crazy. No. Um, makes me feel great. You should. You oh. should. I mean, uh, there there is so much bullshit out there. I mean, if you look at like MK Ultra and everything mm-hmm. that happened during that time period, uh, it, it's just a really dark part mm-hmm. um, in American history, and and the ability for them to do things like that. I mean, yeah. you you crack that wide open in chaos mm-hmm. and make you kind of go, well, this could be a possibility, yeah. Yeah. but you leave it. Where it's like, you could have said, I know for sure that, you right. know, Charles Manson and all of this. And oh, yeah. No, no, you, you don't. You, mm. you're, it's, it's what, what I call no bullshit, right, you know? Right, right. Even before we started the podcast, you're like, people ask you all the time, like, what do you think? Mm-hmm. Right? And your answer is, I, I don't know. Yeah, yeah you know? I still don't know. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. You still don't know. And, and there's chances are you probably might never know. Yeah. Uh, hopefully you do. I mean, I, for, for the amount of work you put into yeah. it, yeah. I, out of anyone in this entire world, I hope that you find out. But, <laughs> um, but I, I want to start back at, you know, who you are as a person, right? Where did, you know, we talked about this. You said you grew up in Philly, right? Yeah. yeah. Um, well, a suburb of Philly. Suburb of <laughs> Philly. Uh, now, growing up in Philly, um, did you siblings, uh, mom, dad? What was it like growing up in Philly? Paint uh, a little picture real quick. Yeah, it was pretty standard. I mean, I came from both of my parents. Well, my mom's parents were immigrants from Italy. Okay. So there was that big 
Italian influence. Yeah. And then my father was second generation, second generation, generation Irish. And there were four kids. I was kind of, I was the youngest kid until uh, my little sister came along. And I, I think that I, then I became the middle kid who kind of caused all the problems. So okay. my two older brothers excelled at everything, sports, academics, behavior, never got in trouble. And I was the complete opposite. Mm -hmm. Didn't do great in sports, didn't do great in academics, and just was wild, you know. My parents always had to go into school because I was getting into trouble. And uh, in a way, I, I think it kind of entertained them because the other two were really great but kind of boring. <laughs> Keeping uh, them on their toes. Yeah. I understand. I understand. Yeah, yeah. And then, um, I mean, I was always curious, you know. Yeah. So I don't know if that doesn't answer the obsessive question. But, um, you know, I did crazy stuff as a kid. I would... Um, so we grew up right behind Villanova University, which is a big, yeah, uh, big university, and that was the coolest thing in the world because that was my playground from the time I was five or six years old. Damn, we would just break into every, or sneak into the football games, the basketball games, concerts. We would go to parties that we when we were thirteen. Yeah, that's where we started drinking. You know, watching stuff you know, <laughs> in the dorms and things yes and um i was a shoeshine boy uh when i was about 10 or 11 there for a couple of years okay and um yeah, this is a story my mom tells at one point they got called her she and my dad into into my elementary school it was like fourth or fifth grade because i had invited Hari krishnas that i'd met at the campus okay to my school to talk to the class without telling the teacher because i knew that she wouldn't approve i said just show up tell them miss caponetti has asked you to come in and then i'll take it from there but they didn't get past the office because they knew my teacher miss caponetti wouldn't have had them in and my they were really upset about it because there were like two or three krishnas who thought they were going to talk to fifth grades yeah yeah graders um so i did stuff like why that. did you do that I wanted to know more about them. I, you know, I was trying to think about that the other day because I was telling that to a friend. I might have been just to upset everything at the school. Okay, but I think I also, you know, I was talking to them on the campus, and um, you know, I brought a homeless guy home when I was a teenager and snuck him <laughs> into the house and thought I was gonna, you know, my mom woke up in the when I was getting him in and freaked out because my. 14 year old sister was in bed oh it was i did that stuff all the time yeah. you definitely were the black sheep of the family yeah yeah absolutely um now <laughs> that's so funny mm -hmm. um now growing up in, in in philadelphia did you go to school out there college no nah, well i went to high school okay. uh, and then uh, after high school i wanted to get out of town because i i, I you know i traveled a little bit not a lot but most of the kids I went to high school with went to schools in the tri-state area, you know, Maryland, Pennsylvania, Jersey, whatever. And I wanted to go further. So I went to a school in St. Paul, Minnesota called McAllister College, a small liberal arts school. Okay. Um, actually, I really liked it. I was there for two years, but I had been making Super 8 movies in high school and junior high just as a hobby. I never took a class. I didn't want to be part of the AV club because they weren't cool. And, um, <laughs> But at college, you know, you're supposed to declare your major by junior year. Yeah. And I was studying English and history because that's what I was most interested in and best at. But uh, I didn't want to be a teacher. Okay. Know? So I thought, oh, maybe I should go to film school instead because I liked that. And I, I had actually, instead of, the, the, McAllister was kind of a hippy-dippy school. Mm -hmm. I don't know if it still is, but back then it was. And uh, I talked to several professors into letting me make movies instead of uh, turning in term papers and stuff. Yes, yes. And they were pretty good. So um, I ended up 
applying to a bunch of film schools and went to NYU. Damn. So I transferred to NYU film school and I was there one year and then I dropped out because there was a feature film being made in my hometown called Taps, which was uh, about a bunch of cadets that take over a military school. It was Sean Penn's first movie. All right. Tom Cruise's first movie. I mean, they'd done a little, little things. And then Tim Hutton had just won an Oscar for ordinary people and George C. Scott was in it. So I wanted to work on that movie and I thought, why go to school when I could just get into the business that way? And, yeah. I, and I got a job and ended up doing production work for a year or two and then realizing I ultimately wanted to write scripts. Shit. So I, um, when you're working in, in production, you know, especially, I don't know how it is now, probably it's the same way, but uh, you're working 12 hour minimum. Oh my days. gosh. Yes. Yes. And I could never write, you know, and I, I, I actually liked it and, I moved pretty fast from like being a PA to being an assistant location manager to a location manager. Shit. Pretty big features for two or three years. Well, and, and then, and then I, yeah. So then I, uh, I thought, well, this is crazy. I'll never write and I'll get sucked into this world, probably make good money and enjoy it, but it's yeah. not going to feed my creative part. I love that. So, so I, I quit the business and went back to NYU and finished. Holy shit. And how yeah. old were you at this time? Uh, it was about th- two and a half years after I'd left. So probably, you know, instead of graduating in 81 when I would have, I think I graduated in about 83 or 84 uh, and was stayed in New York and started driving a horse and carriage um, <laughs> and uh, did that off and on for eight years. And just while you were writing and yeah, yeah. To- I needed a way to make money um, while I wrote. Okay. And at that point, I'd actually kind of transitioned to writing plays. <laughs> and I got more interested in theater, having seen it for the first time really in my life when I lived in New York than yeah. film. And I wrote a couple of one acts that got a little bit of attention, not full productions, but won awards in these contests, but nothing ever really amounted to anything. And then one day on a lark, I had written up a story about an encounter I had. Um, and while I I was driving the carriage, but it was when I got home that night, I sent it to New York Magazine and they published it. Jeez. And all of a sudden, I started getting, uh, I just started submitting stuff and getting published everywhere. I thought, oh, this is easy enough. <laughs> and I became a journalist, you know, accidentally. Organically. Yeah. yeah, I, yeah. I absolutely love that. You know, mm-hmm. it's. Uh, I mean, it kind of shows. I mean, I often wonder if maybe if I'd gone to journalism school or worked on a school paper, my book wouldn't have taken 20 years. It might have taken <laughs> two or something. Because um, all the stories I ended up doing when I was a feature writer were always way too long and late. But my editor, who I, I worked with almost the same one through 10 years, 12 years, she's the same one who assigned the Manson story to me that became the monster it did, and I always oh, blame her for it. But she would still, she would run them long, and she'd always say, do not give me more than, you know, 3,500 words. And this is when you could run long features in magazines. Yeah. She said, don't give me 5,000. I'd give her 6,000. And then she'd end up running like almost 5,000. I say, see, and, and you know, I think I was pretty good in the beginning. Then I kind of got burnt out on, I was doing, I started doing celebrity journalism. And, you know, there's just so many Harrison Ford interviews you can do yeah. without losing your mind. And I s- created something for the magazine, an investigative series about the entertainment industry. So I started writing investigative pieces about show business. And I think... I think the first one I did was about the behind the scenes going on in daytime talk shows. Okay. Most of those shows don't even exist anymore, but um, it was about what the producers did to wrangle guests and, and the fights that went on between the shows. And, uh, Jeez. 
Yeah, I mean, my lead for the that story, I still one of my favorites. The lead is, you know, how you open it. Uh-huh. It was a, a woman, I can't remember what her name was, but she was in a trailer park somewhere in the Midwest, and she had just slit her breasts open with a razor to remove her implants because she <laughs> thought they were leaking. And she almost died, and there was a little paragraph about it in the local papers, and those producers that read <sighs> that stuff thought we want her on as a guest. So two shows went out to try to get her and to come back to new york one of them did and uh the other one while they had that her in a hotel and she was supposed to go on the other day the next day the other show kidnapped the woman from the hotel brought her to their show and she was still disoriented because she was on all kinds of pain medication because they had to stitch up her breast that was the lead to the story and then things got crazy wait that story. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Wait. i think it's on my website if people want to read it it's called um I can't remember what the title was. It's called like the talk show wars or something. I don't even know what to say about that. That is yeah. that, that. Yeah. Yeah. So those are the stories that I ended up doing. Then I won an award cause I did a story about sexism at Saturday night live. And I got all these women present cast members in the nineties. And then f- former ones, you know, from um, Jane Curtin and uh, Julie Louis Dreyfus. Yeah. Uh, to tell me how horrible it was there for women and you know saturday night live and nbc wasn't happy with the story but no. it, was a, it was a good story so that's kind of how i became an investigative reporter yeah that definitely makes a lot of sense i mean everything that you've said has happened organically mm-hmm. um and then whatever topic it is you continue to you push and and, yeah. and and drive it forward um you know as as i think he's pulling this up but uh i i, I want to talk about saturday night live real quick is what was that experience like having to go talk to all these people and find out the sexism and all that bullshit? Well, what happened first was they had asked me, the magazine had a series called on the set. So they would send me to a set for a week of a popular show or a movie. And I would spend a week with the creative people and then the actors and just interview them all and then put together a story. So actually I was thinking of that when I came here, the last time I was in Santa Clarita was in the, 90s i think there was a show called melrose plays yeah 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 so i went and spent a week with them and they shot it in a studio around here and i was i remember how much i hated the commute and i didn't live in la then they put me up in a hotel i lived in new york and they flew me out and it was a long commute when you're coming a rush oh my gosh yeah yeah but um with saturday so then you know they're pretty banal stories you're just trying to make them interesting and luckily i would do shows right when they were beginning usually but actually saturday night live wasn't that case because they'd already been around for 15 10 or 15 years so uh they asked me to do the magazine wanted me to do uh on the set story with them so i spent a week with them and it was the first year that um adam sandler chris rock chris farley and rob schneider were on the show and they were up and david spade and they were up and coming and i hung out with those guys and my story mostly focused on them because they were all trying to break out yeah and um it was a good story you know nothing scandalous or yeah. sensational it was just what how they put the show together what everyone's like and who the new cast members are and then a year or two later a friend of mine who's a stand-up comic who's friends with lots of comedians and stuff um he's actually the guy that got me on the rogan episode greg fitzsimmons yeah he was friends with sarah silverman uh-huh so sarah silverman a lot of people probably don't even know she was a cast member, a featured cast member on Saturday Night Live, mm-hmm. and she was fired by um, Lauren Michaels. And Greg told me, he, he was my neighbor then in New York, he's like, you know, all the women I know who've been at that show have had horrible experiences. My you know, God. they treat the guys like gods and treat the women like shit. He goes, let me see if Sarah will talk to you. 
So I went and met her that day, the same morning she was fired by fax, I think. Uh-huh. And uh, we had coffee, and she was crushed because she'd been a stand-up, but nobody knew who she was. People who watched Saturday Night Live would see her. She'd get a minute or two every show, but beyond the clubs in New York, she wasn't famous yet. And, I mean, it was, she was sad. She goes, I'm going to have to go to the laundromat and get my laundry and then uh, – take it up to my apartment on the fourth floor that I share. She thought, I thought the show was going to change all that. And I don't know why they fired me. I thought I was doing well. She Whoa. got pissed at me when the story came out. Cause I said she got sniffly and she was already cultivating her images like this tough woman. Oh, who's not emotional. Oh shit. Yeah. But that was, so for that, once I got the story from Sarah, then I started getting access to other women. Yeah. And then I did a whole, you know, Lauren Michaels, couldn't figure it out because i'd been a friend of the show for the first story and then when i went back with this story and sat with him it was a tough interview it was kind of like my bulliosi uh encounter yeah um but that so that story came out got a lot of attention and then sarah was pissed she told fitz that she didn't cry she didn't get emotional she was just kind of resigned i go come on i have the tape uh, i have the audio uh, tape i said i'd be happy to play it to yeah. her when she gets choked up oh my gosh yes sir i don't have the first article but i did pull up saturday night fever oh uh, referring to Tom? that's yeah that's the one that i did on the set that uh was the friendly the story first one. that that was that that yeah. was what uh opened up the door it says uh yeah. saturday night fever oh hey bring that back yeah. <laughs> behind the scenes of saturday night live new cast members struggle to make a name for themselves old ones fight uh not to be forgotten and everyone lives with the ghosts of glory's past by tom o'neill yeah and the guy that that story focused on mostly was david spade because david spade was trying to enter they all want to introduce a recurring character because if yeah. you get a recurring character then you're on quite a bit so he had a character called the receptionist and it was kind of growing and everybody liked it and every show they're like eh, it's not ready yet so they thought it was ready for that show and he was so excited and i just followed him that whole week and then, you know, they do the dress rehearsal and then they cut stuff. They always shoot a little more and then they cut what they don't think works well and they cut that, his sketch and it devastated oh. him. It ended up going on like a week or two later and it became a recurring okay. character. Yeah. But, uh, and then Chris Rock, um, they sent, the magazine sent me back to do a, a profile just of him because he was starting to break out and I was the first person ever to do a national story on him. He'd only had local coverage then because uh, it Whoa. was still so, he was so new in his career. So I got to know a bunch of those guys and they were all great. I mean, Chris Farley did cry when I interviewed him and I think it's in the story. He was talking about his first week there, they made him do a strip off with Patrick Swayze, who was a host. And if you remember, Chris Farley, yeah. and he said, you know, my biggest insecurity is that people only think I'm funny because I'm a fat guy. And he said, so my very first week there, they made fun of my body. And he said, I, I almost didn't do it, but I knew I had to do it. And I mean, the poor guy was really, uh, he was a fascinating character. He was so sensitive. Yeah. But really, I mean, he just did anything he could to make people laugh and like him. And, you know, obviously had a bad end. But uh, I got to know all those guys for the week, and it was cool. But, um, yeah, that was a whole lifetime ago. For Damn. Me. Yeah. yeah, 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 yeah. I uh, do have a quick question for you, Tom. You graduated from NYU in 84, 85? I'm trying. No, not 85. I think it was between 82 and 84. 82 and 84? Yeah. Uh, Adam Sandler graduated in 89. Did you guys ever meet? No, him he was there too far too after far me. Out. Yeah, yeah. The ones who were there when I was there was Spike Lee and who else? Oh, oh, a guy who sat next to me in my class. My first 
a film class there was uh, his name is Chris Columbus. Okay. And he did all those John Hughes movies. Oh, nice. oh. He became huge. And here's a mistake if you want to talk about, you know, reasons things not to repeat, you know, yeah. if you have another chance. I liked him a whole lot and he was a nerd. And uh I had just moved to New York for my first time ever and it was like the height it was 79 I think. So punk rock's kind of exploding. Yeah. And he and I were like becoming friends and I'm like, well, I don't really want to be his friend. I want to be with the, the cool kids ah. in the class. So there were a bunch of punks in the class, like this guy, Bill, who wore <laughs> fingernail polish and his hair was purple and blue. And this is 79 before guys did that. Yeah. And all that, he looked like Lou Reed. Shit. So I hung out with all the people who were kind of affected and artsy. None of them ever became successful in the art world or film or entertainment world. Chris Columbus, who I kind of <laughs> spurned, and he probably wouldn't even remember me now. Yeah. Um, he uh, he became huge. You That's know? crazy. Yeah, because he was in the front row with the other nerds. Yep. And there were a couple other people in our, our, our class who were in the front row who were all nerds, and they all now are really successful. And that's a, that's a running story, though. You know, if you look at, like, Steve Jobs or, yeah. uh, you know, freaking um, um, – uh, Jesus, I'm, why am I drawing a blank on his name? Bill God, Gates? Or? Thank you very much. Yeah, I, I was like, Bill, 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 and I talk about him all the freaking time. Uh, Brain fart. Uh, yeah, you probably look back at like all those individual yeah. stories, right? Mark I don't Zuckerberg. even know where the artsy kids are anymore. I lost no, them. no. I mean, it, it's kind of now, it's a different time. It's like cool to be a nerd, you know? Yeah, you know, know, to be able to geek yeah. out on things. Um, but, uh, you know, for you, when you look back at um, those experiences like Saturday Night Live, right? Mm -hmm. um, that, that week, and getting to speak with Chris Farley and find out like who he truly is as a person getting to do Chris rocks, you know, very first, you know, in, mm. in, interview. Right. Yeah. Um, it, what does that feel like? Do you, do you, do you appreciate that? And does that, be well, I was drawn to them cause they were, I guess I was a little bit older than them. Not much, yeah. but I was more interested in that. I mean, the, the magazine was good. They said, just go to the set and find the story. And I was much more interested in the new guys there. Yeah. And I could also see that there was a definite click thing happening with those guys. And I mean, you probably weren't even alive when this was going 86 on. 86 was born. Yeah. I mean, they were a bit, they were like the rap pack for young comedians yeah. after their first season there. And they all became, you know, except for Schneider, who's a little well known, yeah. they all became pretty big. Yeah. But that was the nucleus of it. And I was really just fascinated by watching them kind of find their footing. And um, I wasn't as interested in the people who were there for a long time. I mean, I interviewed Phil Hartman, who, you know, later had yeah. a horrible death. Yeah. Um, Lord, uh, not Lord, uh, Al, uh, what's his name? Al Franken, you know? Yeah, yeah. He was a writer yeah, on well, the show. and became a, what, a yeah, senator. But those guys have been interviewed millions of times. Yeah. And they knew, you know, it was hard to get interesting stuff from them. They were all honest and straightforward but it was the young guys who were you know they weren't used to the attention yes. so they were they're always the better story they're more open and real yeah. you know um i i think about that moment you were talking about chris farley is like you you look at his unfortunate life passing away yeah. too soon um him you know having to you know, take off his clothes. I, I remember that. I mean, I, yeah. I, 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 that became a famous huge, kind of iconic, freaking sketch. iconic yeah. SNL yeah. sketch. Right. Um, but inside internally that hurt him. Oh, it right. Hurt, yeah. So, yeah. It really was, but he was, continued to do it over and over and over and yeah, over again. And yeah. I mean, we yeah. wonder why he, you know, I mean, I'm, there's so many other reasons why, he, you know, he, he passed away, but, uh, it definitely at the root of it is the depression. Right. Yeah. I yeah. Think so yeah. I'm just remembering I also ended up doing a cover story a couple of years later on Patrick Swayze, just not connected to Saturday Night Live. Yeah. He had a movie coming out, 
And that was one of my hardest interviews. One of the nicest guys in the world, but um, I had flown on a red eye because I was still living in New York, out to LA. I went to the set of the movie that he was working on, and it was his last day on the film. I can't remember what it was called now, but they shot that scene. I, I passed it on the way here at the Veterans um, uh, Cemetery, you know, kind of near Sunset and yeah. uh, yeah. Sepulveda or whatever. Mm-hmm. Or I can't remember. Sunset in the floor. But I go by there and... Uh, I just I had a flashback to that because so I I spent the day with him on the, his last day in the movie, and then we went to his trailer to talk for the interview the first yeah. day, and he talked from like I think six or seven until about midnight, and uh, it's great because you want people to really talk, and back then you had that kind of access, <laughs> but I fell asleep because <gasps> I was I was wait, wait. Uh, yeah, 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 I had jet lag, <laughs> and you know I hadn't I just I. Flew and landed at like 10 in the morning, went straight to the set, <laughs> and I'm on New York time, and I, I'll never forget, I just heard this, uh, Tom, 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 and I wake up, and I'm like, holy shit, did I, I am, and you know, how do you apologize? And he was like the big guy, this <laughs> he was, was so big. the 90s, yeah. and he was, you know, the thing is, and I, I, he was really into mystical, you know, he had a magic wand that he wanted me to hold to get the energy from it. And he was into all this kind of, all this stuff that I just wasn't interested in. And when he was telling me these stories about his dog had died like that day or the day before, and he was definitely heartbroken by it. And he he cried during the interview, which you always want. But then he started talking about the reincarnated pets he'd had in the past. And I think that's when I dozed off. (laughs) But he was cool. You know, he didn't get upset with it. And Did the interview continue? Yeah, we finished it. And I actually, the next morning, um, I went to see a friend who lived, you know, in L.A. And he called my hotel and left a message. And I didn't get it until I got back, because back then... At least I was at the Mondrian. I don't think they had recorded messages or I, whatever it was. And it was a recorded message because he said, he goes, I can't stop thinking about our conversation last night and I want to spend more time with you. Do you want to go up in a plane with me? Because he flew planes. Holy shit. And I was like, wow, that would have been great, you know, go yeah. up in a plane with him. But I didn't get it until too late. And I called him and we'd actually finished. I think we got everything that first night. And he didn't return my calls. And then on Monday or Tuesday, my editor, Leslie, called from New York. And she said, so um, Patrick's uh, uh, publicist thinks that either you drugged him or hypnotized him. Because he said he he keeps talking about you and you did something to him. And uh, she said, I said, never ask them to do something social with you. Because, you know, you are supposed to have some distance. And she goes, I couldn't believe he invited him to go flying with him when the interview was over and stuff. Because he hadn't even written this. I hadn't written the story yet. And Leslie said, you didn't put any. I go, no, I fell asleep. I was the one who felt drugged. (laughs) So I never... um, and you know, a lot of people get upset with your stories. He was upset with my story. Uh, not, I never heard from him, but his publicist called the magazine, and he took a, uh, offense to something I said about his wife Lisa, who was a dancer. Okay, I just made it seem like she was only a dancer. I think he was because he she was trying to be an actress too, and her career never took off. So I don't think he was upset that I didn't identify her as an actor of caliber and all that. So it's weird how you never know what's going to piss people off. But otherwise, I think he was okay. (laughs) (laughs) You fell asleep. Yeah, yeah. um, I I think it's the only time it happens. (laughs) Shit happens, man. Um, Unfortunately, his story... uh, 
Yeah. Yeah. Also ended. Yeah. Yeah. Ended way too soon. Um, so when you're doing all of this, how old were you back? How old were you at that time? Uh, if it was the nineties, I think thirties, like early to mid thirties. Oh yeah. Cause I got the assignment to do the Manson thing. And at that point, then I never did another story for 20 years, except for this one. I, I had just turned 40. Holy shit. So before leading up to the Manson thing, you were still in New York though. Well, no, I was in New York and working there and loving New York, yeah. but I kept coming out here. The magazine would send me out here three or four times. And again, this was the days that, you know, magazines were flush with cash. So they'd send me out, put me up in the Sunset Marquis, the Chateau Marmont, the yeah. Andrian. I'd get a rental car and I'd be on an expense account for like a week or more. And it was great. And, and a lot of my friends from New York also were writers, actors, comedians and stuff. They had all kind of migrated out here. So I'd see them and they kept trying to get me to move to LA and I didn't want to live in LA. But finally I said, ah, you know what? Maybe I'll just try it for a year or two and I'll sublet my place in New York so I can go back after yeah. two years. Uh, and friends of mine actually found me an apartment and put a deposit on, on it and then told me about it. And they said, <laughs> so you have to come. So I talked to the magazine and they said, uh, I said, you know, you'll save a lot of money because I'll already be out there. And they yeah. said, great, if you want to do it. So I did it. And literally uh, about six months before the two years was up on my sublet in New York, I got the magazine assignment. And then it started going beyond the deadlines. And I knew it was a big story. So at the two-year mark, my landlord put an eviction notice. on. I had a guy in there that was a legal sublet. It was a great apartment in Little Italy that I loved. And they said, if you're not back here uh, by you know, the, the exact two-year date, he, the, he's got to go, and you're losing the apartment. Holy shit. So I had to choose between, and, and back then, and even now, you know, an apartment in New York was rent control. was a great price. Fuck, yeah. But that was the first kind of real tough decision, I guess, associated with this, was what was more important for me to go back to that apartment or get this story. So I stayed, lost the apartment, and then ended up, you know, working on the same thing in L.A. for until last year. Jeez, man. So I never got back to, I go back a lot to visit, but I'm still thinking, I always have a fantasy of moving back there. I might. Do you have friends and family out there? Well, I have family in, in uh, New York, Maryland, and Philly. My mom's 93. She's still alive in Philly. Wow. So Shout I go out back. to mom. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. Seriously. She, she listens to every one of these things. Yeah. yeah. I try to keep them a little clean, but she, <laughs> you know, she was shocked. She had never heard of Rogan. Yeah. So she wanted to do her research before I was on. I said, don't listen to any of his shows. <laughs> and, and she's like, she called me, I don't want you going on his show, Tommy. I go, Mom, he's like the Oprah now for, for books. Yes. I go, my friend Fitz, who got me on, said that he and his comedian friends, if they had the choice between being on Fallon, Colbert, Kimmel, or Rogan, they'd all do Rogan because yeah. he has a much bigger base. Yeah, huge. Um, so she's like, well, if you think so. So I did it. And it was relatively clean, I think. Yeah. Oh, but yeah. she's like, now she loves him. Because not only that, he, he talks about the book. Yeah. Like every third or fourth guest he has, yes. if they get into anything at all, conspiracy, yeah. drug related hippie, <laughs> he starts telling them how great the book is. And then my sales skyrocket. So my mom's like, he's such a nice boy. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, he's such a good boy. Yeah, yeah, that's yeah. so, <laughs> that's yeah. so awesome. Um, and, and I, I want to get to that experience. Um, because I, I think that it's important, but uh, I, I do want to bring it back to kind of the, the beginning because we're kind of mm. leading up to everything, right? Um, so at that moment, right, you had to sublet your apartment. 
what was it? Was it the the book? Was it? Yeah, yeah. Oh, because it was, mean, was it even a book at that point. No, no, it was still a magazine article. It was still a magazine article. But right? I knew that I couldn't go back to New York. I mean, what I should have done in hindsight, but I was still kind of broke. You know, I should have just um, gone back and spent a month there, and then come back to L.A. And you know, my my landlord was. I don't. You guys are too young, but um, his name's John Zaccaro. And his wife was Geraldine Ferraro, who was uh, the first yes. woman to run for vice president. Yes. So that was a big deal. And he was not a nice landlord. And I knew that he had eyes everywhere. So I, I, I knew I couldn't get away with doing it illegally. That's why I did it legally the first time. Because I didn't want to be evicted before the two. If I did an illegal sublet, he would have known and I wouldn't have got I would have lost it the first month I left. So I could have tried coming back, but it would have been a problem. And it was just like, I knew that what I was doing was really important. I might not have another chance. And I yeah. couldn't live in New York because the people I had to interview, the archives, the police record, everything I had to get was here. Yeah. So I let it go. Yeah. And now I can't even walk down that street anymore because I just get so sad. I mean, the neighborhood has also changed. Little Italy was the best neighborhood when I moved there in the 80s. Yeah. I was there about 17 years and now it's, you know, well, I don't know what it's like with COVID, but prior to COVID, it completely turned into like a real kind of, you know, um, all the little shops were replaced by uh, boutiques. Yeah. Like they'll sell one designer handbag in this glass window that costs $10,000. Yeah. And all the, you know, the Dominicans, the Chinese, the Italians, they've all left the neighborhood and it's all Wall Street people or tech people, young people. There's no diversity anymore. When I was there, it was struggling losers and artists and stuff yes, like that. Yeah. But maybe that'll happen again. With I, th- <laughs> I don't know. I don't mean to laugh um, yeah, yeah. because it is it is sad. But yeah, mm-hmm. I mean, I know with COVID, a lot, a lot of people have, have... Well, my collaborator lives in Brooklyn and he says, he keeps telling me all his friends are leaving. I said, Dan, every time one of them leaves, find out where their apartment is and what they're paying, you know, and if I can afford it, you know, maybe I'll do the bicoastal thing for a while. Yeah, I mean, I hear rent prices have dropped tremendously. Yeah, there was there. an article in the Times yesterday for the first time the median rent is $3,000, you know, um, which when I lived there, when I left, I was paying nine twenty five for this massive apartment on Mulberry between Prince and Spring, one of the coolest blocks in the city. Nine twenty five. Yeah, that was ninety seven. That's crazy. What was the median average before? Uh, COVID? Well, it was I was it was rent control, but I think you still. Well, actually, that's right when Little Italy was changing and becoming Nolita. Yeah, I think you could still get a studio then for about eight or nine mine was considered a one bedroom okay but a one bedroom would have been about 11 or 12 and i'm sure the place i have now is probably three three thousand thirty five hundred or something what what was it now like in 2020 uh before covid like before it was like three because you said three thousand dollars now what do you think it was before oh no what i'm saying in my apartment then yeah like the median average in january oh, in 2020 J- yeah i would guess if it's three thousand now it was probably about a thousand a thousand more no a thousand flat I, I i actually need to read the article i just read the headline yeah <laughs> but i don't know what how they define an apartment i mean is that a studio or one That's bedroom true, right? or two bedroom yeah but, definitely uh, yeah yeah find out what the median uh income oh there we go here we go here we go all right all right what does it say it says average rent in brooklyn and rent prices so brooklyn new york market trends highlights the average rent for apartment in brooklyn is two thousand nine hundred and fifty one dollars five percent increase compared to the previous year so damn it there's still an increase compared to the previous year even with covid um but how 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 long does that last yeah i I mean and we don't need to go down this whole 
you know, yeah. a COVID conversation right now, but um, I, I do want to bring it back to kind of uh, your story. So you, you moved out here a year or two later, that is when you got the, the contract to start working on the, the yeah. story. Yeah. And that was a, a three month assignment, you know, it was supposed to be done in three months, yeah. turn it around and then get the next one. But it, like I said, I got the editor in chief kind of sucked into what I was finding and he was in New York, but he'd come out to LA and come to my apartment and we'd spread all my files on the floor and he got really excited about it. And um, shit. so he actually paid me monthly for almost two years. I think it was 16, 18 months and then got fired. And no uh, way. Yeah. Yeah. And when I found out he got fired, my editor, so he's the editor in chief. He runs the whole magazine, but he was personally invested in my story. But my editor, Leslie, who assigned it, uh, she called me to tell me. I said, please tell me it didn't have anything to do with my story because it was a huge financial suck. Uh, the magazine lost a lot of money that I had to, well, that's a, I'm not allowed to talk about it because I never published the story there. When he got fired, the new guy came and he wanted the story in a month or two. And I said, I can't turn it in. I haven't <laughs> answered yeah. questions. Then I got my book agent who was pretty high and mighty and powerful and and now he own he's one of the partners that owns icm he's the one that got me out of my um magazine obligation by reaching a a settlement with those guys about what we were going to do with the other money and then he was the one who kind of shepherded it through the book book process and and he's still my agent what do you think it was at that time? Because I mean, you had not even come close to you know yeah. having anything that you have now. I mean, what was it? What do you well, think it was? It once was? it went beyond just the Manson murders into COINTELPRO, MK Ultra, and especially it was right around that time that I found out found these documents implicating Jolly West in his files at UCLA, yeah. and that was big because he was a very prominent now dead or even then deceased uh, psychiatrist who had a worldwide reputation, and he had been accused in 77 when the world found out that MKUltra existed, thanks to a whistleblower. Uh, he'd been accused of participating in these like Nazi-like experiments on people without yeah. their awareness or consent, and he denied it. And he went to his grave never being held account accountable, and every so often it would come up, and every time he was you know, accused of it, he would laugh and say, he, you know, he would threaten. He would either get angry and threaten to sue it if they published it, or he would just laugh it off. And he made the mistake of leaving these papers in his archive at the at UCLA that I found, like yeah. a needle in a haystack. And once I found that, and then I knew about his involvement at the Haight Ashbury Free Medical Clinic where Manson was going, and his involvement with Jolly West. Uh, the day that West had his nervous breakdown was the day that he visited him and. That was what he was doing for the CIA secretly, was learning how to develop those techniques. So then I knew it was like a much bigger story than a magazine could have handled anyway. Jesus. How, how long, in, like, you, so you, you started it, and then how long up until that point did you figure out just that chunk right there? Uh, I think the West stuff happened about the summer of, I started in March of 99. I think it was the summer... I should remember all this, but I, I try yeah. to, it's either the summer of 2000 or the summer of 2001 that I spent the entire summer at the Charles Young Library on the campus of UCLA in the special collections. He had 120 boxes of papers wested, and they were still releasing them. I think there's more than 200 now. I haven't gone back, and who knows what could be in there. Yeah, um, I don't want to go back because I don't want to be sucked <laughs> in again. 
but it was you know the whole summer before I found what I just intuited. You had no evidence that. I mean, there was a circumstantial case that he was involved in this, but he was never investigated and he denied yeah. it. But I just felt like, based on the pattern of stuff that I'd seen that he'd been involved with with these criminal cases, there was something else going on in his his yeah. life. And, and I found it. You know, that was like the best day of my life, one of them. Jeez, man. When you're going through all of those, right, you're just sifting through probably this, look that, and the it, other. You look at, I look at every single page, and that's how I found it, because they weren't in a file. That's why he missed it. You know, he probably had graduate students, you know, going yeah. through everything. He had misfiled these letters with Sidney Gottlieb, who was the head of the program that began in 1952. Mm -hmm. and I think they went through the best ones, the most comprehensive ones, went through about 55 or 56 and they were in, I'm actually not going to say what folder they were in, because I still, I don't want people going back. I'm scared they're going to steal them, you oh, know. Shit. And I don't know if the university, maybe they've sealed them now that the book came out. Yeah. But um, they were in a file that you would never have expected them in. And that's probably why he never double-checked his yes. graduate students' work to make sure they got everything out. That is incredible. Yeah. I mean, to think if he remembered and took that out, yeah. there, there, there wouldn't be any of this. And uh, it wouldn't have come to light uh, about everything going on. People listening right now, do you mind just kind of explaining real quick what MK Ultra was? And yeah. Everything so MK Ultra was a secret program run by the CIA. It began in 1952 under Alan Dulles, who was the head of the CIA. And it was a response to what the CIA believed was being done by the Soviets. They were brainwashing people using drugs, primarily LSD, but other drugs too, and hypnosis to try to create Manchurian candidates, which were people who could be programmed to kill yeah. and be amnesic of their programming, and sometimes even be amnesic of the, any act they did. Uh, and what the CIA feared was that uh, they needed to have some kind of defense of this happening especially to Americans who were captured, you know, uh, and there were a bunch of prisoners of war who were captured in Korea in the early 50s, and all of them made, not all of them, but a bunch of them made statements that we had been um, breaking the, the, I forget what the code is called, but um, the International War Code by using germ warfare on the, on the Koreans during the Korean War, and the government said they were brainwashed, this is a little bit in the book, but that's another area I want to go into more if we do a second book. I'm convinced now that they were actually telling the truth, and we brainwashed them when they came back to say that they'd been brainwashed by, because West actually Holy was the one shit. who handled He was one of the doctors who handled them when they came back. I'm not the first one to say that. It's, um, I mean, even the Times has written recently that there's so much evidence we use germ warfare over there. Um, so that program was supposed to be defensive, but it was offensive. Yeah. They wanted, if they could do it, the Soviets and the Chinese, we needed to know how to do it and do it better. So for, from about 52, 53 to 72, 73, it was the most expensive operation the CIA had. I mean, they spent more money on it and they hired academics and they hired private researchers to test drugs, hypnosis, all kinds of different you know sleep deprivation on people often if they were doctors their patients without their knowledge yeah. they set up safe houses in city like cities like san francisco and new york where they would get prostitutes to lure johns into the into the apartments that had two-way mirrors and the the prostitutes would dose the the johns 
with LSD and they'd study their behavior, see what the prostitutes could get them to do. Or, and the prostitutes were not real, but they were agents. Oh, uh, shit. Yeah, yeah, That's yeah, correct. Yeah, yeah. And um, what a job. That was called Midnight Climax. Yeah. And West was one of these doctors. Mm-hmm. Uh, so uh, in 72, 73, at the height of Watergate, and this is, might be in the weeds, but uh, Richard Helms, who then ran the CIA and had been running MKUltra since 52, 53 under Dulles, but he later became the director, he was uh, indicted for perjury, and he was implicated in a bunch of Watergate stuff, so he had to leave the agency, and when he left, he also, Sidney Gottlieb, who ran the scientific branch of MKUltra, left with him, and before they left, they destroyed all the records. So to this day, we really have no idea how much was done beyond what was found, and that was a couple years later. Someone within the agency at the State Department knew that there were financial records that were kept in a warehouse, and he got them out so we could see how much money was spent and where it was spent and at what institutions, but there was no record of the experiments, what they achieved, who they did it to, who the patients were. Until I found the West records, they're the most yeah. comprehensive than, that, that, that exists to this day because these two guys destroyed everything else. So it all came out in 70, beginning in 75. Uh, there was a Rockefeller Commission that was investigating um, abuses by the CIA and the FBI, and that's when the congressional investigators were contacted by John Marks, the whistleblower, about yeah. these files. And then there's a little drip, drip of information. There were three or four different congressional investigations into it where uh, it started coming out and getting reported on the front pages of the papers. That's just so mind-blowing to think that your own country, your own government would do things of that nature. Yeah, I mean, it was against the Hippocratic Code, you know, do no harm. Yeah. These doctors were, I mean, West talked in his letters to to Gottlieb about the success of his experiments with LSD on his psychiatric patients because he said their behavior is already unusual so I can get I can use this and not raise you know people aren't going to say wait a minute because yeah. they're much easier to experiment with I mean can you imagine somebody who's already sick in the head and their most fragile possession is their mind and these yeah. doctors are fucking with it you know literally fucking with it and, yeah. and they think that's okay i mean well they did it you know most of them did what they said for patriotic reasons you know it was a cold war they thought that they were saving but you know i from what i found out about was from studying i think he was just a sociopath yeah you know i mean even in the book you talk about like how he it's like he enjoyed it right yeah, like, yeah and one of the psychiatrists who worked with him who, who suspected he'd been with the cia but he never knew it for sure he said, even without knowing it for sure, my the way I described Jolly was he was a benevolent psych, benevolent psychopath. So he was very nice on the outside, but inside he was sinister. Just a crazy fuck. Yeah. That that's so scary to think that uh, we could do that. Do you, do you um, believe that we do anything like that to this day? Everybody asks me that. I you know I can't imagine because I did you know. They accomplished a lot, and one of the things they got away with in the congressional hearings were putting up this front where they said, you know what, we did do that stuff, we're ashamed of it, and it was a huge waste of manpower and money because we didn't accomplish anything. Nothing worked. That, I believe, was a cover. So I think that the fact that they lied so much about what they didn't accomplish means that, yeah, they're probably still doing it. I have no idea where or how. I mean, even doing it in the United States was illegal, in the 50s and 60s, because they're not allowed to operate on domestic yeah. soil. Soil. 
the CIA yeah. has to be overseas. It, yeah, I, I mean, it just even like after reading the book and just uh, my own thoughts, like, they have to be doing stuff like that to yeah, this day. Yeah. They have to, and especially with technology and everything going on. I mean, yeah. it's uh, it, it's pretty scary to think what is possible today compared right. to the six, 50s, 60s, and 70s. Right. When you started, you know, going down that rabbit hole, you know, and you found that, you pulled out that file and you read it, what went through your mind? Do you remember what went through your mind? Well, I found these first letters, and they sounded like what little <coughs> we knew about the objectives of MK Ultra. They were spelled out, but I didn't know who Sherman Grifford was, who um, it was addressed to. <coughs> Excuse me. So I had photocopies made because you can't take anything out, yeah. and everything that you have copied there, they have to look at first. <laughs> so you flag them, and then it's you know a graduate student who's working in the collections takes it, and I was like, I hope they're not going to realize that this is something damaging to the yes. university and to this West. But they came back, gave me the copies, and I did think <coughs> that the Grifford name sounded familiar. So the first thing I did was I was already looking into MK Ultra. There's not a lot, a lot of books, even then there weren't. But the most kind of definitive book about it was the first. It was called The Search for the Manchurian Candidate by mm-hmm. um, John Marks, who was a whistleblower. I went to his book, looked in the index, and found Sherman Grifford's name. And it's in a footnote where he, Mark says that Grifford was one of the aliases that Sidney Gottlieb used when he was corresponding. So then I knew it was right. And then I went back and just kept digging. And then I found more and more of uh, these documents. Yeah, that. So I felt great. I mean, (laughs) although I knew then, like, all right, now this is going to take on a whole nother. realm you know yes and, and yes would, would were you at any point like at this point right were you like um afraid or scared or like it just i mean because you you opened up pandora's box yeah. at that moment you fucking opened up pandora's box yeah. and for the first time ever it's like this is 110 percent proof of everything that has been going on yeah um what was that for you mentally like was was well i felt like it was too big for somebody who wasn't you know a new york times reporter yes i'm like wait a minute why me you know i'm an entertainment reporter who does a little (laughs) investigative how did this happen am i going to be able to do it so that was scary i never was scared for my personal safety people told me i should be all the time i was always scared that documents were going to disappear or um the only kind of uh fear i did have that i guess it was legitimate but it sounds a little paranoid but i was worried about people breaking into my apartment to get get stuff so i would do stuff like if i went away for a month or something or a few weeks um i I did this with my friend fitz the comedian who lived two doors down from me who, who by then had a wife and two young kids um they had given me the keys to their house at Christmas. They left before I did to go back east. I left a few days later, and I had the keys to their house, and I said, uh, oh, I had, they wanted me to check something, maybe feed a hamster or something. <laughs> so I bought a couple boxes of my most kind of sensitive documents, and I hid them in his five-year-old daughter's closet behind a doll collection. <laughs> and we came back... <laughs> He found them, and I hadn't told him. I thought, he, she's not going to. I mean, yeah. she had kind of outgrown the dolls up there. It's like, what did you put? And I'm like, oh, I meant to tell you. He goes, yeah. you put stuff that you thought that like 
the intelligence people might break into your apartment <laughs> in my dark. So like we can joke about it now. But yeah, that's the only thing I was scared of was losing. I also got a safe deposit box and after that, once I could, you know, afford it, um, and started putting stuff there and always having backup. I mean, that's something I was really kind of rigorous about. And this is before like computers and laptops and all that shit started taking off no well it was the late 90s it was computers were around but it wasn't as easy like scan yeah. i didn't have a scanner or anything yes. like that yeah yeah um <laughs> you put it in his five-year-old daughter's box <laughs> yeah, yeah. uh well, at that point how long had you been into you know your investigative journalism uh well before the manson assignment i had done the entertainment investigative journalism yeah. i think i did like about seven of them or eight of them over the course of two or three years. Um, and then this was for Us Magazine, which when I was there in the 80s and 90s was a monthly, and it, now it's a horrible tabloid. It was about the entertainment industry. It was a little too celebrity-oriented, but they would let me write long stories about sexism you know, at a famous show, things yeah. like that. Or about the abuse of uh, guests on talk shows by producers, you know, without famous people, really. Um, and then Jan Wenner, who owned Rolling Stone and Us, in right after I moved to L.A., like 98, 97, he decided to turn Us into what it is now, which is like a weekly, and I mean, even then, I don't think reality TV was as big as it is. Now it's all reality yeah. TV stars, but it was like much shorter sleazier stories not well reported so everybody at us went and moved over to premiere which was a monthly magazine about motion pictures so where us was about the entertainment industry in general um, um premiere was just movies and hollywood so that's when um I, I wanted to go over there but one of the editors from us had gone to a magazine called details which i think still exists okay and she, uh, I pitched her a story about this unsolved murder of this poor girl from uh, Michigan who came out to L.A. And, uh, the year before. I mean, she'd only been yeah. killed like a couple months before. And again, this is Leslie Van Buskirk, who was my editor for all these years and then was the one that gave me the Manson assignment, which changed my life. Yes. And she's the one who, when she was at Premiere, she said, this doesn't work for us because it's a crime story, but I found it's always a paragraph. She said, I saw a paragraph in the back of a paper about a girl in Hollywood who was found murdered in a lot in Fresno. And she wasn't identified for like a week and a half, and it turned out that she had won a contest, Miss Hollywood. Fuck. So she said, I think you should pitch that around and do, you know, find out what happened to her. So I pitched it to details to the woman, another woman from our magazine. And that kind of got me, that was the first, actually the only crime investigative piece I did before Manson. But that's the first time I had to interview cops and, you know, people who were suspects and witnesses. And, and that was a frustrating thing because I spent like six months on that and I didn't solve it. So it's open-ended and I thought yeah. that I knew who did it. And the magazine, probably justifiably so, he was pretty powerful. She said, we don't have enough evidence here to put the finger on him. He'll sue the hell out of us. So I had to modify it and kind of take all the oh. teeth out of it. And that really upset me. And again, they were doing what they had to do. Um, but that was kind of the first thing that I was like, I sometimes wonder when I was doing the Manson thing, if I was still kind of reacting to not being able to get the conclusion to the uh, her name was Jill Weatherwax story. 
um, which now I'm also thinking about going back to all these years later and, and going up to Fresno and seeing whether now with DNA stuff, because she's still to this day. What was so fascinating yeah. about her murder is her body was found 50 years to the day, I think, or a week that the Black Dahlia, the famous murderer oh, she, here, yeah. her body had been discovered in a lot. You know, they didn't identify her for days and she was cut in half. And she had the exact same profile as Jill Weatherwax, a Midwestern girl, came to Hollywood, had a little talent, but you know, all of a sudden you're not the little you're a little fish in a big sea. Yeah. And their lives kind of spiral and then you get murdered. And Black Dahlia is still never solved. So I, I couldn't believe the coincidence that fifty years later the exact same story happens with this woman. Yeah. Yeah, so, but you, you you had said that you thought that you knew who the individual was. Yeah, yeah. Right? Yeah, I, I, and he's still alive. And uh, I keep up with him on Facebook. Yeah. <sighs> Man, if that's... If you read the story, uh, people can still figure out that I think it's him, but I didn't keep out the best... I had to keep out the best stuff that would have implicated him because um, I guess it was too... I don't know... He would have sued us for libel, and yeah, but uh, I mean, if this, if, if if all the fingers pointed, I'm like that old saying: if it smells like a duck, if it tastes like a duck, yeah. it's, well, it's a fucking duck, right? Yeah, yeah but um, you got to be careful when you're putting that out there. Yeah, yeah. if it's uh, an individual that's yeah. got the money and higher up and yeah. all that stuff, that's something though, you know, Tom. That after all this time with chaos and everything like that, you should. You should look at possibly yeah. going back and looking at that. Because- yeah, well, I actually got a call, not a call, I got an email from a, a retired, not a retired, a criminal defense attorney in Fresno, not about this, but about my book. He just wanted to tell me how much he liked it. And he said, if you're ever in Fresno, I'd love to meet you. And I said, well, actually, I did a story up there. I go, how long have you been a criminal defense attorney? And it turned out he was a lot younger than I thought. I think he's in his 30s. Okay. So he wasn't in criminal defense then. Now he is. So he, I sent him the story or a link to it, and he's looking into it and see, he's talking to the cops he knows to see if there's been any progress on it. You know, 20 years, yeah, it was 98, it happened, 97 or 98. So no more than way. 20 years after, yeah. Yeah. I mean, they definitely should be with the advancements in DNA right, evidence. Right, I, mean, right. I mean, because listen, man, if this, whoever it is, right, mm-hmm. uh, did something like that, and you said they cut the person in half? No, the black guy. The was black guy. Out. Okay, but Jill was stabbed like twenty times or something, and yeah. uh, she was found. I mean, almost in the exact. The black guy was unfortunately in two different parts, but not in her back. And yeah. Jill's body. I almost for a minute thought maybe it was modeled. Somebody killing her, modeling yeah, it like, after the yes. black guy. But they didn't cut her in half, unfortunately. Oh man. Well, I I, I hope that with everything going on. Uh, that that individual looks at it and yeah. you look into it deeper um and so it was it was after that right that then then yeah that story came out i think in december of 98 and then march of 99 it was a day after my birthday that leslie called me and she said okay i, I think i want you to do a not i think she goes we want you to do a story here and i hadn't written a big feature premiere yet i'd done a couple freelance things actually even before us she goes, but we want you to do a story about the 30th anniversary of the Manson murders in August of this coming you know, summer. And I was like, oh, God, no. Oh, come <laughs> on, Leslie. And she goes, look, you might not be aware of it now, but now that I've kind of put it in your head, everywhere you go, you hear Manson referenced. Anytime there's a horrible crime or some kind of evil, the people, they always use him as... And sure enough, I, I did hear it, but I said, but, you know, it's been written to death. What can I say that hasn't already been said 
I'd never read Helter Skelter, never been interested. And she said, you want to work here, right? All you need is one feature under your belt and they'll hire you, you know, full time like yeah. I was at the other one. And I said, all right, you know, she goes, you'll find an angle. And I guess I did, but. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you, you, you definitely found an angle. Um, how long was it until you started going down that rabbit hole when you started having those con- conversations with Vincent Buliosi? He was one of my first interviews. Uh, and, you know, he opened up his home to me. Uh, and it was great because he hadn't talked about it a lot. He, you know, the book still sold. He, he, yeah. he made a TV movie about it, which I, I, up until a certain period, there was another TV movie that came out like 10 years later. His movie was the most viewed TV movie on the case. It was made in the, I think, late mid-70s. So he hadn't talked for a while, and I went to it. He agreed to be interviewed for the for the magazine. I went to his house, spent six hours with him, and I think it's how the book, no, the, it's in the book, but it's just hinted at in the beginning yeah. what happens later. But uh, we had a great you know relationship in the beginning. And um, at the end of the day, I thought, you know, I've got the, you know, except for Manson, the most important person in the, on the record with all this great stuff. But even when I was interviewing him, by the end of the interview, six hours, I knew that I wasn't getting anything fresh. Or And I did what we call the Hail Mary pass, which is you ask your subject to go off the record if they can tell you something that uh, you won't uh, attribute to them. And I said to him, I go, Vince, is there anything, because I was still kind of looking for the, I was looking for the angles yeah. the first week or two. And I said, is there anything you can tell me that's never been reported about this before? And um, it, it's something that, you know, at least gives me new information. I said, you know the case better than anybody else. And he kind of thought about it for a minute. And then he said, turn off your recorders. And I had two recorders because I would use two for important ones because mm-hmm. I was not good with technology. And <laughs> I had too many missed. At Harrison Ford, I came home and my tape, I had done, you know, he is the most reticent interview in the world. He hates doing it. Yeah. His contract, he only has to do one magazine per movie. And he was not happy to have to sit and talk to me. And when I got home, there was something the matter with the recorder and you couldn't hear a word he said. So I, you know, I always use two after that, but, um, so Vince turned <laughs> off the there. recorder. Oh, we've, been been, we've, been there. we've been there. Oh yeah. It, it, I did a podcast it, it, a year ago with, and luckily she was a friend of mine. She never turned the recorder on. We talked for like two hours. <laughs> and she's like, all right, we have to do it all over again. I can't. I said, I can't. Not you, with you. I go, get somebody else that, you know, but because it, I, it's just going to yeah, be. Yeah. yeah. Real quick, if you don't, you might see me just peek every second over there. Yeah. Yeah. Everything. yeah that's just to make sure that it's still recording because I had that happen one time. I pressed record, but there was no SIM yeah. card in it. And oh, so it's, uh, it's a, it's it's a, a lesson learned. It, it's, it's the worst feeling in the world. Yeah. Uh, well, not in the world, but fucking terrible um yeah, so, he, so he agreed then to tell me something off the record and when if your listeners do read the book they'll see that i uh i ended up you know violating my agreement with him by attributing it to him but that's because six years later he decided to sue me because he i was writing some reporting so much or planning to in my book so he would reference what he told me in letters to um my publisher that would have been part of a lawsuit. So the minute he broke it, then I was allowed to use it, which was great. So he made that mistake. So that kind of um, changed the course of, of where my reporting went with him telling me something 
If he had just said, no, I don't know anything, who knows? Maybe I would have turned the story around in three months. Yeah. Do you think that he knew everything? Yeah. I, I was just telling somebody that the other night. Uh, I think that was the one among the many frustrating things that happened. I really thought I was going to break him down. And everybody said, you know, he is a sharp attorney. You know, he, he as he said, he, he won every murder case he ever tried. He lost one jury trial out of the couple hundred that he, he tried. He's not going to, you're not going to break them down. I go, but I got to, cause I got so much of the goods. And if people read the book, they'll see what happened. I didn't, I didn't get him to admit to anything really, but I got him to go completely crazy and start threatening me yeah. and making lawsuits and making up stories to try to smear me. And, and, you know, which is what a guilty person does when 100%. you catch him in a lie. So, but yeah, I still, he went to his grave with the secrets. I, there's still a few people out there that I think know the truth and they're the ones I'm still kind of, I wake up in the middle of the night thinking, how can I get to them now? Or how can I get them yeah. to talk? Yeah. I mean, do you think the, the government at this point knows what the hell is going on with all of that? Uh, you mean with what happened all yeah. those years ago? Mm -hmm. I, you know, the federal government, I've been talking to people the last week or two about this. Um, I don't think, I think everything was destroyed. We're never going to get any more records unless they're mistakenly left somewhere. Uh, and the people who are currently in the CIA, I don't know what the new regimes are told about what the old regimes did. I mean, even every regime is compartmentalized. It's one of the, the things the CIA does is they only give each other department as much information as they can need to get what they need from each department but they don't tell them everything so they have um what's it called uh, the there's a phrase for it where you you can say you don't know honestly um um I oh plead the fifth or no no no, no. It's, it's something it's in the intelligence world okay yeah yeah yeah, 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 yeah. i'll think of it i'm getting too uh, old <laughs> uh, anyway um but um i think that the people there's not a lot of people alive from the yeah. mkl world. there's hardly any i actually somebody did reach out to me and they said they have somebody who who worked in mk ultra who they've been talking to about my book and they they're going to try to get that person to talk to me because he's basically confirmed everything i've said but he's very reluctant because she's worked with she's another author and she's worked with him confidentially she's never she's used his information in her reporting but she's never exposed him and she said it took so long for me to get him to trust me and he's old enough that he might not be around longer than a few months or a year. She goes, I don't know if I can get him to even talk to you off the record, but I said, we'll keep trying. Ah. So there's still a few of those opportunities out there. But I think if there's anybody alive, uh, they're the only ones that they I are. mean, but about the Manson case in particular, and I talk about this at the end of the book, there's the Tex Watson tapes, which are in a safe. If they're not destroyed, the, the official word is they're in a safe at the LAPD and they're Tex Watson's confession to the murders to his attorney. And it's either eight, the, the, the number of hours changes constantly. Sometimes it's eight hours, sometimes it's 20. But in those hours, he describes how and why the murders happened. And, and if people read my book, they'll see that I, I believe the official narrative is nowhere near the truth. I believe the real truth is on those tapes. And I was the one that discovered that they were still around and started to get access almost get access almost. to them and then the da swept in and got them actually through a court case in texas against watson and 
they were going to share them with me. That was the arrangement because I was sharing information yep. that helped them get them. And then as soon as they got them, you know, I still can't believe how naive I was. And people told me, yeah. Yeah, why are you trusting them? I said, well, I don't have a lot of other options because I'm not getting them and they yeah. can. But sure enough, as soon as they got them, they cut me out. Because like, what would you have done? Right? What would you have done differently? Right? Yeah. I mean, if I had money, I would have hired a lawyer to sue for the tapes from where they were. It's too complicated to explain now, but, um, but the DA's office had all those attorneys on, you know, on staff and they got them and, uh, and now they won't let anyone hear them. And I think there's a reason they won't let anyone hear them because they would, you know, show the truth of what really happened, why and how. Yeah, absolutely. Did you find something? Uh, I just wanted to say, is this the Kent's word of estimative probability where it says chances about even, probably not, almost certainly not an impossible CIA terms of the probability of something happening. Oh, oh no, no! I'm sorry. Oh, you're talking about the the need. Oh no, it's called need to know. Ah, need there we go. Know. Is that what you said no, but nope. I'm glad we got you. But that worked. That triggered something. Yeah, it's called need to know. So they only, you know, like so when uh, after the Kennedy assassination, um, Dulles was fired by Kennedy. Yeah. As the head of the CIA, and a lot of people, including me, believe that Dulles was behind the assassination yep. and, and the old CIA. Uh, the new director, McCone, never knew. He was there, I think, three years before he left and was replaced. He never knew MK Ultra existed while it was still operating in the 60s because they didn't want him to know. Uh, the only reason Dulles knew was because he started it. But, you know, people within the agency, the only ones who knew what was going on were the ones who were directly involved with it. Yeah, that's, I mean, you go all the way back to the JFK assassination and. And that that everything that went down. Do you think we will ever find out what exactly? I mean, well, the weird thing was, you know, Trump had the opportunity in uh, about a year ago or two years ago, early into his presidency. This uh, this mark came up, and it was I don't know how many. I yeah, it was the 50th anniversary of the Kennedy assassination. I guess uh, where Congress had enacted a statute or something and this was after oliver stone's movie about it yeah. he he and other people lobbied for it where they were going to make available the cia's files on oswald which everybody thinks that's where the secrets are but the only person who could permit it or withhold it was the president and the president happened to be trump and people thought that trump was such a maverick yeah that he would just release everything and it turned out he only released like a fifth of it and he let the CIA withhold, choose what to withhold, and they withheld like 95%. Why? So, Why do you think that is? Because there's truth in there, you know? But you get someone like Trump who's just so off the cuff, right? Yeah, like, yeah. Why wouldn't he? Why wouldn't he talk about aliens? Why wouldn't he talk about this? Why wouldn't he talk about yeah. what is holding it, right? There's Because, yeah. I mean, you've just... I mean, in your book, you've opened it up so much, mm -hmm. and, and we look back at all these different times, yeah. and it's... It, there is something still all these years later that yeah. is holding this mm -hmm. fucking shit together. I, it, it just boggles my mind and so many people's mind. Yeah. yeah. Um, you know, for, for you looking back, being able to speak with like Vincent and, and you know, everything that, 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 that he did, I asked you a question earlier, like, do you think he knew exactly what went down? Like, you think he really knew, like, every little bit? The reason I think he did was because when I caught him in really important lies, you know, 
for instance, Reeve Whitson, who's an important character in the book, who uh, was an undercover intelligence guy who claimed to the people who were closest to him, who have infiltrated the Manson family and knew that the murders were going to happen, did nothing to prevent them. That was his dying regret. Also said that he had been to the crime scene after the killers left, but before the police arrived there. Um, We've brought in witnesses to Vince and um, witnesses that Vince couldn't get to talk, wouldn't talk to him. He couldn't find. Reeve was a special guy. Brought them in, and his name is in the in the testimony because usually when you have a really important witness, the defense wants to know how the prosecution found out about you, how the police found out about you. So again and again, it was well. Uh, Reeve Whitson came to me, and Hatami, the most important witness, said, and he threatened to have me deported unless uh, I went in and and, and met with Bugliosi. So he testifies about Reeve and Bugliosi and him being together. So Reeve was a linchpin in my book and in this case. And when I asked Vince about Reeve, he said he didn't remember, he didn't know who that was. And, and you know, there's a, a bunch of these. So that made me, that and some other stuff about the Smiths, David and Roger Smith, made me convinced that Vince did know the yeah. truth. And then what, you know, and I didn't really go into this in the book, but we did add a new footnote to the paperback edition. I don't know which one you have. Okay. But it's an end note. Um, you know, Vince spent 20 years, as long as I did, writing his opus about the Kennedy assassination, where he took on every single conspiracy and, in his words, discredited them to show that Oswald acted alone. Now, I think it's a whole piece of propaganda, and yeah. I think he knows it too, mm-hmm. but I believe he was compromised since before the Tate La Bianca to do the government's bidding. And, um, that book, I think, was uh, something that he had to do to pay off of, you know, a lot of debts that he had for stuff he got into in his own life, trouble he got into in his own life. Yeah, I mean, it's just such a slippery slope, man. I, mm-hmm. I, I everything that, um, you know, in, in the book, everything that he shared with you and the conversations, and then you know what you just brought up, it just, I don't know, all of it kind of it, it, it makes sense, you yeah. know. Uh, and I, well, I was telling you before we were on mic, yeah. I think that I have an Instagram page where I'm putting up audio excerpts yeah. and documents and stuff. And I put up something last week, which was an interview by an attorney with a woman named Virginia Cardwell, who was Vince's mistress in the seventies, uh, who he beat up because she wouldn't get an abortion of his baby. Now that sounds tawdry and ancillary but it wasn't because what he did was when she reported it to the police went with her bruised face yeah um he went back to her house the next day with his secretary held her hostage for three or four hours until she agreed to go to the police and say she'd made up the charge and he said i will make sure you'll be arrested but i'll have the da drop the charges a few days later so she's telling this whole story to her attorney and she did sue him in yeah. civil court a year later and he paid her about 10 grand to keep quiet and so none of this would come out so in this particular instance he lied to the not only to the media he called the papers and said i don't even know her you know she was a disgruntled client trying to extort me for a hundred dollar legal fee um but he'd been having an affair with her for, I mean, I've talked to all the people who were around at the time and he did beat her the hell out of her. Uh, So he lied to the papers and to the police, which is a crime. Yes, it is. And he had done that. And this is all in the book three or four years earlier before the Tate LaBianca case, when he decided that 
his milkman was the father of his yes. first son. Wow. So he was a really, let's say, complicated sociopathic person yes. who was compromised. I mean, when they found out about this first case with the milkman, he was stalking the milkman, threatening him. And that's another good thing about when the book came out, the milkman's daughter, I had actually interviewed the milkman yeah. and he said, all I want to do is confirm everything that was reported. I don't want to add anything to it. And I said, okay, I just, as long as you'll do that, I have enough of my own court documents and stuff that I can put it in there. But uh, after my book came out, his daughter, I should probably shouldn't, well, I'll tell it. I don't care. She got in touch with me and she said, the stuff that came out in the public record was nowhere near as insane as what, Vin's put my parents through. She goes, I have so much more to tell you and show you. She goes, my parents are dead now, so I can tell you the truth about yeah. what really happened. She goes, for example, he picked me up from school when I was five, six years old. Bugliosi took her to a toy store, bought her all these toys, anything she wanted, oh then brought her to home and put her on the sidewalk in front of the house with this big pile of toys so the parents could see what he'd done, that they knew that he had access to their daughter. I mean, he was a sick puppy, Vince. Um, he was, you know, and, and the DA's office knew about that. He should have been disbarred. Actually, he should have been arrested and, yeah. and prosecuted, but they kept him there, and they helped keep it quiet. It didn't come out until the mid-'70s when it was first found out. Holy shit. Yeah, yeah. How is that even possible? I feel like in today's day and age, they would be fired so fast, but yeah. maybe not. Yeah. Um, but yeah. but well, I think uh, they needed somebody in there that then had to do their bidding. And Neville Younger, people can read about it in the book, was a district attorney, and he was an ex-FBI guy, OSS, CIA. Yeah. Uh, and he was, I think, the one who was pulling all the strings for the government and pulling Vince's strings. But, uh, yeah, so the... I put up the first part of the tape as her describing the beating by Vince. Yeah. And then either today or tomorrow, maybe tonight or probably tomorrow, I'm going to put up the second part where she talks about him coming back to her apartment the next day and keeping her and coercing her into going back to the police. And I mean, he had a secretary with him who played with this woman's five-year-old son in the other room while Vince is in the bedroom screaming at her threatening her begging her saying you have to do this it's going to ruin my life there'll be a trial i'll get disbarred we have to lie to the police so you'll hear that tape next when i get that up in the next day or two because they've never been heard before these audio tapes oh my god yes sir why vince uh in the sense of do you think that he's not the first person to go digging in jfk files do you think he was the first person to go far enough do you but why why did did he get chosen you mean yeah uh, I think uh, I think he was a really bright, by all accounts, law student, head of his class, I think at Loyola, got into the DA's office, and I think it was because of the Milkman case. When they found out how crazy he was, but still brilliant, and they kind of had leverage over him then because he should have been, like I said, prosecuted and arrested, they kept it quiet. Then, in exchange, he had to do their bidding. Yeah. And I think he kind of sold his soul then. And rather than saying, prosecute me, I shouldn't have done it. I'm, I'm mentally ill. Right. He told me himself, it's in the book. He said, uh, when we had our final confrontation at his house, mm -hmm. he said, you know, my wife has been trying to get me in to see a psychiatrist for right. years. And, you know, maybe I should, because he was trying to get me to back, you know, he, he would go back and forth, like try to be my friend right. and then threaten me. And he goes, maybe I'll do that. Almost like saying, you know, if you don't publish this and I show you that I've been to a shrink. That's it. And then the milkman's wife 
it's in the book, uh, when uh, Vince's wife, Vince sent his wife to the milkman's house to beg them to give uh, them a, a blood sample or something from the milkman so Vince could have it tested. Sure. Vince's wife, Gail, said to the, the milkman's wife, she goes, my husband is mentally ill. She said, he won't stop until he gets this. I know that your husband didn't father my child. Yeah. Just do this and it'll all be over. And the milkman's wife is, we're not going to do it. Leave, leave our house. Right. Stop bothering us. Good, good. Yeah, so, I mean, he was, that was it. He was mentally ill. That's I shouldn't good. say he was a sociopath. I'm, no. I actually shouldn't say anything. I'm not a doctor, but right. you look at the patterns. But there's, there's something there. Yeah. And, and I, I guess what I'm most curious about is say, because he was brilliant. In a sense, yeah. Right? Well, Hitler was right, exactly, mm -hmm. yeah. exactly. And 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 do you think? I mean, that behavior of coming back and forth—that's the behavior of a desperate man. Mm -hmm. I can question. Do you think it was theatrics? Do you think that he was trying? You mean with to, me? Yeah. Oh, there was I definitely mean, he's a, seven feet tall. So most of his life, he's understood that he was intimidating. Oh yeah, yeah. He knew. Right? Oh yeah, he yeah, knew yeah. That. yeah, yeah. And and to come up. To somebody, and, and I love hearing about your childhood, about how you brought a homeless man in. And yeah. like, because I think it further, for me, uh, digs deeper that you are somebody that says, I, I won't be intimidated because I will follow what, what whatever your drive is at that moment. I'm going to follow it. Mm -hmm. So he was an intimidating man where the majority of the world would give him what he wanted. Mm -hmm. He was intimidated himself. Do you feel that his it was theatrics, or do you think that he was he was... With me? Concerned, yeah. Oh, no, he was concerned. I mean, yeah. he really, he, he was going to say that I was a pedophile. Yeah. And he did, this is another one of his patterns. So when the milkman went public, what happened was Vince ran for office. He, after Helter Skelter and the success, yeah. you know, he had a best-selling book. He had a lot of money, but his dream was to be the president. Right. So he wanted to run for office, so he ran for the district attorney of Los Angeles, mm -hmm. left the DA's office, and when the milkman and his wife you know, saw that he was actually running to be the most powerful person in law enforcement in Los Angeles after what he'd done to them five years earlier. They went to his opponent and said, you need to know what he did to us five years ago. And the opponent was like, great, let's have a press conference. And it took a while for him to persuade the milkman and his wife to get, you know, to go before a microphone. But they did it. And that's why he lost that election. Yeah. And... Um, I'm sorry. What was the question that made me? <laughs> no, no. I was, I was asking if you, oh, the, if you thought that Vince was was playing. Theater, oh, so oh yeah. His behavior was very desperate. Yeah, yeah. So then, with them, when they went public with that, his response was, and this is so crazy. I love it. He said, "No, here's what really happened. He was our milkman, Mr. Wiesel, and in 1965, $200 or $100, I can't remember, cash went missing from our kitchen." So I was just investigating him to see whether he had robbed the kitchen when he delivered the milk. And as the opponent said and, and the media said, well, all right, here's a, there's a couple reasons that's wrong. The Pasadena, where they lived in Pasadena, there's, we went to the police. There's, you never reported this. Why did you take it upon yourself? That's the first thing. The second thing was you were investigating it till 68. The statute of limitations on a robbery without a a person involved where you're just stealing from a house would have run out. So if you found out that he did steal $200, you couldn't have prosecuted him. <laughs> so that whole felt, but that's what he did to this couple who were a milkman and his wife. He smeared them in the press to save himself. Yeah. 
with Virginia Cardwell, he allowed her to go and say that she did make the story up. She was just upset because he wouldn't refund her $100 for one consultation. And she lied to the police at his behest. So he used her in the same way, you know, to make, to, to protect himself. And then with me, he was going to tell the world that I had been sleeping with teenage boys. Yeah. And when he said it, I laughed because I'm like, Vince, you don't know that I know your history now that that's the first thing you do is you try to intimidate and scare your person using your connections with the DA's office. And he even said he had evidence of this from like 10 years before. And I said, all right, well, so Vince, why didn't you go to the police with this evidence? If you thought I was actively committing a crime, yeah. you've got all your friends in the cop. Please. Well, 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 I go, then you couldn't have been serious. You're making it up. You're just what you do. That's so. exactly what he did. Go for it. One final question. Yeah, yeah, no. I've been kind of pondering and, and even going through the book, I was pondering what, what are your thoughts about LSD? About <laughs> yeah, the power about, of it? Yeah, or. or I mean, as much as you know, it's yeah. really good research. Uh, I mean, it's not direct research about LSD, yeah. but you know enough to, to really... Yeah, I mean, I have a lot in there in the book about it, but there's a whole chunk of stuff that I found that we didn't get in the book, and I do want to... Oh God, every time I do these interviews, I start thinking, why don't I just go home and do the sec start the second one? <laughs> I mean, they were doing research with LSD in 65 in Los Angeles uh, where they were trying to find out why some people were more susceptible to having a complete personality change with one LSD experience and others weren't. I do have a little bit in the book. They were looking for the trigger, mm -hmm. uh, whether there were, um, they had a predisposition, something in their psychological or chemical makeup in their brain to make one person all of a sudden be like, you know, a guru after, you know, all the believing in other kinds of gods and wanting to change their whole life. And another person, like me, I did it two or three times. I didn't have any dramatic personality changes. So I think it, it depends on the user. And yeah. I think the science is out there saying the same thing. But what fascinated me was the people that were doing this research in 65, and this isn't in the book. Uh, I don't even think I've talked about it in an interview because it's deep in the weeds. But the guy who was in charge of that uh, lived in a, there were a bunch of shacks that were converted into like nice, not nice, but relatively nice bungalows at the end of Topanga Canyon Boulevard at the beach. And they were all torn down after the 10 went up. Uh, people consider them an eyesore, but from like the 50s until they were torn down in the early 70s, they were a bohemian community uh, <laughs> that was occupied by like writers, academics, surfers, hippies. And the first LSD use outside of the, civil, or outside of the military and the federal government was through this guy named Paul Rowan, who brought it to them from, he was using it in research for the CIA, and he shared it with the community there. And there were like, I think 100 people, like 20 homes or something, 100 off and on through the years. And during that period, Tex Watson, before he met Manson, moved into the bungalow next to Paul Rowan and was there with that group for about six or eight months. And then he became involved with Manson, so then Manson and the girls started coming. And that guy's research, his whole life scholarship up to that point and a few years beyond, was determining which people were more susceptible to being manipulated and used by a, a powerful type person than others. We kept all that out because it was such a dense chapter. Sure. 
And it's one of those, I think it's the only one that Dan and my collaborator and I had a kind of serious disagreement about. But um, at that point, you know, we were already getting behind on another deadline. <laughs> but that's something I got I got to use. Because I have all those people that were there and saw all this who spoke to me. Um, and not, now a lot of them are dead. Uh, and I interviewed Paul Rowan about it. But not about that part, because when I interviewed him, and this is where it gets in the weed, he actually was interviewed by the LAPD because of the Tate LaBianca murders and his knowledge of some stuff. And I didn't know about his history with the CIA. I just found his name in the file. So he told me something that made no sense whatsoever. And it wasn't until a couple of years later when his name popped up like West did in this research. And then I found out that Watson lived next door to him. And that's why the police wanted to talk to him. Um, and then he was dead. And I couldn't interview him again. So that was one of those things where I got got beat by father time yeah i mean that part of the chapter um that obviously didn't make the book uh that does point a lot of fingers in the direction of kind of where it well that was actually civilian world yeah and at one point with with my publisher the first one that ended up canceling and suing me for the return of the advance (laughs) when i brought that to them when things are starting to get trouble between me and them and they saw that they said okay you get a couple more years that's that important but, um, yeah, it's complicated why it didn't end up in the book. I think it was more because I knew there was going to be a follow-up and I'd be able to flesh it out more because there's still a lot more stuff I need to do to get, you know, to kind of polish it. Yeah, absolutely. Did you have another question? No, no, I'm, I'm just fascinated. <laughs> yeah, I mean, this, this whole... This, this whole story, everything. And what I find, you know, what, what's most fascinating to me is you keep on pushing you just kept on pushing the entire time i mean yeah. 20 years to come out with this um and i said in the beginning this this masterpiece because it does it opens the eyes and ears uh to the uh, american the world pop- population of what happened uh during all of this mm-hmm. because we're you know prior to your book coming out and you know whispers around it was like helter skelter you know and and uh but you've proven time after time uh all the shit that vincent bugliosi did mm-hmm. and how can we even trust his narrative yeah, yeah um to this day um do you hold any grudges against him like it will for i mean come on he said you know the stuff about the teenage boys and yeah, it's yeah. just oh yeah yeah gross. That, that pissed me off yeah um, that uh and it didn't surprise me i mean it surprised me because i knew it was all going to fall apart yeah it, it did with the other two with the mistress and the yeah. woman and the other thing is i know there were other cases like those that i didn't find out about but um do i did i i, I my grudge is that he died against him is that he died i yeah. was really pissed off because i and a lot of people who criticize the book and me think that i waited until he died to publish which is insane because i was broke and i'm still broke because i'm still paying back my publisher for the first advance and the magazine (laughs) so it's like why would i i I mean i wanted him to be accountable i knew it would have been a much harder fact check with the publisher the the new publisher who did the book that since he was dead there was much less of a threat but you know what i found out during the fact checking process was his wife could have sued us because she's the heir to his estate (laughs) including helter skelter so they said they did rigorously fact check the stuff everything about him which is almost the whole book and they didn't make me change anything and they because i thought 
you know, I, I told him, I said, my biggest regret is not getting this done before he died. Cause I, he wouldn't answer the questions. I thought, well, once the book's out, he's going to have to answer them when yeah. other people come to him. Uh, and they said, well, actually we have to worry about his wife because she can say that you devalued, and I think I did devalued his, his book. Oh, fuck. Yeah. But I haven't heard a, a peep from her. No, not at all. And I know that she knows everything he did wrong. And I shouldn't say this, but I don't even care anymore. I, she's one of the people that I've often thought, now that he's gone, you know, maybe I should knock on the door and see if she'll talk to me. You should. Because I know, well, where she lived, but I don't know if she's still there. You, but. you definitely should. Go for it. Go for it. I, I'm so sorry, but I actually, that was something that stood out to me uh, in the prologue itself. Yeah. But, and I'm sorry, I'm, I'm focusing so much on this. But, oh, it's all right. Uh, but she you described her in such a way where she almost hung her head down and oh, yeah, yeah. to go to bed. Oh, yeah. And that part stuck out to me throughout oh, the entire book yeah. because it never really came back around. Yeah. But I felt that you were trying to tell everybody yeah. she knows she knows more than she's saying. Yeah, so I'll tell you after. Um, <laughs> let's just say she suffered a lot more than I gave any indication of in the book. I mean, I, fa- I found out stuff since. Um, I just think... I don't know why she stayed with him all those years. Uh, maybe she was really in love with him, but the stuff he put, I mean, she had to go accompany him when he's stalking and threatening the milkman. Yeah. When Virginia Cardwell happened, she had to stand up with him at a press conference and say, my husband would never cheat on me as if she'd know, you know, and yeah. she knew. And that's the stuff I know. I mean, she knew about everything he was doing. So she also made a pact with, the bad guy and i don't mean him i mean the devil or whatever and i don't know how pleasant her life could have been and i saw it when i was over there i mean she always seemed exhausted especially when she had to hear him spouting off this nonsense to me this bullshit it's 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 and she a, was a nice woman. You know, I liked her. But but that's a, that's an ongoing tale with, you know, relationships, you know, the woman yeah. or man standing by their their significant yeah. other. But you know, as you talk, I just think more and more like to find out more. Yeah. She has the answers. I don't know if all of them, but yeah. she has some answers and so knocking on her door wherever her door is, um I don't think it's a bad idea. She's going to have a pistol and <laughs> <laughs> or maybe she'll just feel this sense of uh like she obligation. wants to unload yeah 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 yeah, yeah. and i guilt and since i haven't heard from her you know maybe that's my kind of signal to come on yeah absolutely i mean if she like if she was like her husband what would she be doing she yeah. would be suing the shit out of you right, making right, up right. crazy fucking stories mm-hmm. uh but instead there is nothing Silence, yeah. yeah and i mean this all this stuff has to come out and a man like that who has continually put people down put himself before them create all these false narratives Mm -hmm. Uh, it it, it must come out and you know everything that happened with the tate labianca murders i mean um it it just there's been enough time Mm -hmm. where i i would hope that the truth would finally come out Mm -hmm. and for for you you know in the beginning you were like you know i i don't know right Mm -hmm. and i and i totally respect that at this point in your life what do you want to see yeah i'd love to see those tapes released yeah um i don't want to get optimistic about some of the new leads i have that, that are very specific and easy not easy to report they'll still take time and finessing 
but I actually have places to go and people to talk to that might have some answers that will be important puzzle pieces. Yeah. Um, and that's the stuff I'm working on now. Uh, I just want, yeah, I want more information, which is actually, I think, how we <laughs> end the book. Manson just, the, the book ends with Manson saying to me, you just want information, man. Yes. Yeah, yeah duh. What, what what do you think he knows a lot like or, well, he's dead i mean no yeah. i mean at that time do you think he no knew i think i you know that's the one thing i go back and forth on sometimes i think he had to know everything yeah other times i think no if it worked he has no idea why he did what he did or how he got you know actually this is something that's good i have been getting information from people who are obsessed with the case and there are people who know more about this than i do even with my 20 years who are just amateur like detectives who think who've always believed there's something wrong. And there's a couple of them who've gotten in touch with me with interviews that I somehow missed where Manson talked about being protected from 1967 on yeah. that. He said, I could do no wrong. And it was thanks to the feds. And I'm like, how did I miss that? I mean, one of the reasons was I didn't want to put too much of Manson's anything he said, cause he's such a disinformation artist. Yeah. But some of the stuff that I didn't know about, a few things, was so specific, I would have put it in if I had it at the time. Um, well, this was before your story came out. so Before the book came out. Yeah, yeah, yeah right, yeah. right. And so before the book came out... Did, was, he had said that, but I had never... I mean, he'd done so many interviews. Yeah. Some of them, actually, I saw... I, I watched or listened to so many of them before any of that possibility came into my head. I didn't, for a year, think that he might have been an informant or have a special relationship that was slowly coming yes. so i think what happened was i just saw so many in the beginning on video or listened to so many that i forgot i mean i didn't pay attention to the little crazy things like that that's amazing yeah. i mean it's it, it is the little things right and that people are reading up. my book and they're going back and re listening yeah and, and they're coming to me with this stuff they're gonna find a lot of answers have you ever seen yeah. that uh that uh documentary called don't fuck with cats on Netflix. Oh, I heard about it. Yeah. I, my nephew loves it, but I yes, haven't seen it. Yes, yes, yes. I mean, it's um, different stories, right? Yeah. But it's something that was put out there, and then the people online, they mm -hmm. just started tracking, and they fucking figured out and solved the case, right? Um, wow. And so now that with the internet and this wide expansion of just information, you're you're at this point, right? Um, the book came out 2019, right? Yeah. 2019, right? Um what is it like now? Because I know that you were on Rogan. Um, and mm. how did all of that come about? Like what, uh, cause Greg Fitzsimmons is your friend yeah. next door neighbor. Mm. Um, when did that come to yeah, Rogan? All, you know, every time. And I love it when he plugs the book and I, yeah. he's not deliberately plugging it. It's no. just on his mind. And he starts yeah. talking about it and saying wonderful things, but he always begins by saying, cause he knows all of his listeners know Fitz. Yeah. So he said, so whoever his guests will say, so you know, Fitz, right? And he goes, so Fitz had his neighbor who for 20 and I'm like, I wasn't his neighbor. I was like, M, one of his best friends, yeah. and we were, he became my neighbor in New York years before I did. I got him, and I knew him through another comic friend, got him into my building, and then he actually got the apartment next to me because the people were leaving, and I got him that lease. And I joke that I put roofs over his head twice in New York, and then I helped him get his first place in LA. He came shortly after yeah. I did. But Rogan makes it seem like. <laughs> Fitz just was interested in this next door neighbor who was working. And I was like, no, no, we have all. I go, Fitz, you got to correct that. Yes. Tell him. Fitz, like, yours, you have his text. And I'm not, I'm not going to bother him about that. You know? But yeah, so Fitz, what's interesting is so when my, before my book came out in, in 
It came out in June of 2019, I think, or July, June, I think. Months before, you know, Little Brown's gearing up for the publicity thing, and uh, Fitz volunteered this. I didn't ask him. And I didn't know much about Rogan, except, yeah, yeah. he has this wildly popular podcast, yeah. and he calls everybody bro, you know? Yeah. And there's a lot to do with WWE or something. <laughs> or MME. <laughs> UFC. UFC, whatever, yeah. It's all good, it's all good. Yeah. And I knew him from June, I'm sorry, is when it was really June, thank you. Yeah, June 2019. So... Um, Fitz said, this is so up Joe's alley. I'm going to tell him about it. So Fitz, I think he told me he called him and emailed him. And I didn't push it because at that point, what little I knew about Rogan had to do with Alex Jones. Yes. And I thought, if he has Alex Jones on there and then me, (laughs) I don't want to be in the same stage, you know. So I didn't really care that much. But I did mention it to Little Brown. And they said hmm you know we haven't had our authors there he's got a massive following but they didn't push it too much so and then rogan never got back to fitz and fitz says to this day he goes i think i only communicate with rogan when he reaches out to me i don't think he reads his texts his emails you know he runs everything yeah so so a year later fitz is doing rogan uh so i was on in april i think he was doing him like in march and he said, this time I'm bringing a synopsis of your book. I go, give him the book. He goes, no, I don't want to over. I just want to give him a synopsis. Do you have a good sign? I said, yeah. And he said, I know the minute he kind of focuses on it, he's going to book you. So that night after he taped his show, Fitz calls me up and he goes, I don't owe you anything anymore for those roofs. You owe me now. I go, are you joking? He goes, no, no, he's calling you tonight. He wants to book you. Holy shit. I'm like, oh, fuck, I hate being so obligated now to you, Fitz. I go, but I have to get more views than you, and yeah, I did. Yeah. Anyway, but he's been on so often, I don't think people get too excited. Yeah, so I, still, I still count and compare. Yeah. <laughs> what was that, uh, that experience like? Because, I mean, Joe Rogan is... Oh, so he texted me that night and he said, I can't believe, and he he couldn't believe he had never heard about the book. So the book, you know, we didn't get as much publicity as we thought we would. Yeah. We didn't get the sales we thought. We got, we didn't, you know, in the New York Times, you never know what they're going to do. They didn't review it. They did do a piece about me um, for the style section of all sections, but it was okay. (laughs) It got interest. Uh, I was okay with it. I was just so glad that anybody bought it. And, yeah. you know, I did some podcasts. Uh, I did a little bit of TV, not too much. But things were really kind of waning off in the winter. Um, and then, yeah, so then I get the text from Rogan. And I actually was still a little apprehensive because of the Alex Jones thing. Yeah. So I thought I better look him up a little. So I said, he said, he texted me. He said, I really want you on the show. Can you talk to me tomorrow? I'm going to call you. I said, yeah, Sure. So um, I emailed the people at Little Brown who were kind of a little the same way I was, a little apprehensive yeah. too. And they were like, are you kidding? Do it. You have to do it. Yeah. No. And then I found out actually just a, a week ago, I had lunch with um, Annie Jacobson, who's a, a, an author who writes books about military intelligence. She's done like five. And one of them was on Area 51, UFOs. The other one's on um, psychic the use of psychics by the cia the, the last one was called vanish kill she's going to kill me I, mean, I really like her so she was a little brown author and she told me at lunch the other day she said i was the first little brown author to go on rogan and she was on like four or five months before me 
She yeah. said they learned that you don't say no to Joe Rogan yes. because he changed my book sales like yeah. overnight. And um, so, yes, I knew I had to do it. And then he didn't call me the next day. Oh, and, shit. But then I saw he was in the newspapers because that was the first time on one of his podcasts he said he wasn't going to vote for Biden because he thought yeah. Biden was senile. Yeah. And he implied he was going to vote for Trump. So there was a ton of attention. And I thought, oh, now I'm never going to hear from him. He's distracted. But it was like a day late. And then and then he booked me for a week later. And he said he was, uh, I think he said 11 chapters in. And he said, but I promise you I'm going to finish the last couple chapters before I see you. That's what I found out he hadn't done. And in a way, it worked, I think, to my benefit. You know, I, I was hoping, you always hope they've read the whole book. Yeah. Because you don't want to have to do too much expositional, you know, mm -hmm. uh, explaining and stuff. But the way he interviewed me he hadn't gotten that far so i'd start to talk about it and i said well, i don't want to spoil the ending for you and it wasn't <laughs> at all you know deliberate or yeah, yeah, yeah. plan but it worked with him and then it, i think it made a lot of people want to know like yes, read the book that's smart to the end so um it was a great experience and just like everyone said he so that it would change everything yeah. about the book even my life so he announced it you know, a week or so before he had a guest on. And I guess he had actually talked about it once before, and I had heard that. But when I saw that his, his things were three hours long, I'm like, I'm not going to listen to three hours. <laughs> now I actually do because sometimes he talks for 10 minutes about it, you know? He had a CIA guy on there that he gave him homework to read the book. Yeah, yeah. So um, when he announced it on, on one of his podcasts, all of a sudden, you know, my phone's lighting up, just, you know, yeah. and everything sold out. So this was in like early April before I was on. And this was a frustrating thing. They couldn't replenish the stock at Amazon because of COVID. So all the bookstores are closed. It's, it's early April. No. And Amazon is only restocking essential stuff. So nobody could get the book unless they bought the digital or the audio. So the audio sales did really That's well. That's how I read it, yeah. Yeah, but a lot of people want you know want it in their hand. And what I want is people to have the end notes. They're the most important pages yeah. to me. I should have brought you a book. Damn. It's 60 pages of my research. And I actually add, you know, I, I cheat, which is why we want end notes, stuff that we couldn't fit in the narrative Then I put in the end notes. Like, I'll explain more. Shit, I, I did not because I did the audio version. Yeah, and I don't like it that much. But <laughs> a lot of people love it, so that's fine. Right. Yeah, I'll, I'll let you continue. I'll yeah, so then, uh, so nobody could get the book, and then I was on a week later, and that's when like my social media blew up when I was actually on yeah. the show, and then ever since then the sales have been fantastic, and if they lag off a little, it almost always gets brought back up because he'll talk about. I mean, I haven't listened to Con I, I tried to listen to ten minutes of Kanye today, and I just like I can't listen to. <laughs> what, what do you think it is that? What do you think is the power of Rogan? Like, why does he? I have not, actually. That's a good. Somebody should do a thesis paper on that. So I like him a lot. He's a great yeah. guy. He's smart, but um, three hours with every guest. I don't think I don't think I should have been on there three hours. Yeah, I mean, you're. I mean, for you, because I obviously listened to your podcast on there. It was by far one of the most engaging 
ones where you're just sitting there and you're driving your car, you're working out, you're you're taking yeah. a shower, whatever, right? And you're like, are you fucking kidding me? Like, are you serious? Are yeah. you serious? And I guess it did work to your narrative that he didn't read the complete book because you were able to kind of give up more and then like cut things off, yeah. right? Yeah. Which is fantastic. Um, I don't I, like to name drop, but I've met Rick Rubin a couple nights ago. I yeah. had dinner with him. Good he for listened, you. He listened to it twice, the podcast. Yes. And I'm like, I tried to listen to it, and I said, I, I couldn't. I mean, I know what I said. Yeah. I listened to the first five minutes and then the last five minutes, because that was at the time before it was public that he was COVID testing his yes. guests. And that freaked me out. I mean, you're asking what it was like the night before the yeah. interview. He texts me and says, uh, hey, Tom, you want a COVID test tomorrow? It's at the beginning, right? Yeah. He said, I, uh, I have somebody that comes in and tests me and you'll have the results in 15 minutes. And I'm like, I wrote them back and I said, and if they're negative, does that mean I don't get to come on the show? Then I don't want to do it. And he said, no, of course not. You'll get on the show. But then I, you know, for 24 hours, this is when I didn't really know if it was a death sentence or not. Yeah, that's, yeah. Then I was distracted about like, I'm trying to focus on, all right, what do I want to talk about? What should I bring up? And then I thought, if I get a positive and go on, there's no way I'm going to be able to focus on the conversation. Yeah. So luckily I got a negative. And at the end of it, and I didn't plan it, but at the end of the uh, of the interview, I said to him, he was thanking me for coming on. I said, yeah, you know, thanks for having me. Thanks for the COVID test. And then Joe goes, he looked startled. And he said, oh, yeah. Um, so for those of you who don't know, oh, I, yeah. he goes, I've been testing guests. And then I thought, oh, fuck. And then I, I, I thought, he, I shouldn't have said that. Well. And then, but he was fine when I left, but I was driving home thinking, he could cut it out or maybe he's pissed off. Nah. But then it didn't matter because the next day, this guy who recently or since then has been accused of a uh, uh, Me Too, Ilya, Chris Ilya or something? Alana. Chris Ilya. Yo, so he was the next guest. He had been done already. And then his show was on before mine. So when he was on, actually before his show aired, he told an interviewer about it all. And then Rogan got a ton of press for... You know, people were pissed off because you couldn't get tests. It was hard to get them yeah. then. And that he was testing and he had already said so. And, and then Aaliyah, whatever his name is, he talked about it on his podcast. So then yeah. I knew I was off the hook. So it wasn't going to be my responsibility. I don't, you know, I don't, I, I'm sorry. I, I don't get that. It's like, I, there was a crazy time, you know, during, yeah. during that experience, but you know, mad respect to, to him to be able to do that. Right. Yeah. I yeah. mean, um, but yeah, I mean, and now I guess Jamie, his guy, has it right. Yeah, yeah, Jamie uh, was just diagnosed, so he uh, brought in Redman to um, do the, the Kanye. So who West. is Redman? Because I saw him today. I think on the Kanye one. Is he? Yeah, a, I thought he was a comedian or something. Yeah, he is a comedian. Oh, he's not a producer. Or? No, he is. He is. Oh. Um, here, let's uh, let's pull him up real quick. But I'll I'll, I'll show you because I don't want to talk out of context. But uh, so he started the podcast with him. And who started it? Oh, you mean Rogan? Rogan. Rogan. Oh, in the very beginning. Yeah, in the very beginning. Um, here, hold on. Damn it, Joe Rogan, and this will explain it all. Because I don't, I hate talking out of my ass. <laughs> here, hold on one second. So, yep. So, since the very beginning, I I don't know the whole story why Red Band left, right? Mm -hmm. Um, but if you look at 
Joe Rogan Experience number one. It says Brian Redband, right? Okay. Um, so when he started the podcast, he started with him, um, and then whatever and he's happened. He's a comedian, not a fighter. He's a comedian, yeah. Okay. yeah Who's, isn't there a fighter that has a similar name? Um, that's on a lot. Shit, I know who you're talking about. Red somewhere because ah, whatever it is, uh, it doesn't. It doesn't. He's Rogan told me he's the one who actually first told him about my book. Oh shit! Before Fitz did, but he said he was only half listening, and it wasn't until Fitz sold him on it. But that's a guy because then he did have him on after me, and they talked about it. Um, Yeah, um, damn it! I know who you're talking about. I I can see him in my head. But um, yeah, so that's who he started with, and so since Jamie got you know freaking tested right or tested positive, uh, and I'm sure he had the Kanye West, the Matthew McConaughey one all booked up, all that stuff, and uh, he needed a producer, Mm -hmm. so he probably flew him out Uh because I haven't listened to his podcast for like the past week or so because I was listening to um, uh, David Goggins' book, and then I was listening to Matthew McConaughey. David Goggins? David Goggins is a Navy SEAL who it is because he has lots of Navy SEALs on. Yeah, he is, but this David Goggins is by far one of the just most insane dudes on the face of the planet. What he, he just shows you that most human beings only work at 40% of their full potential. Well, those and, shows always depress me. Yeah, no, but his book was amazing because What's it uh, it's, um, uh, can't help me. Can't hold me down. I'll have him look it up. Uh, um, but it, it, yeah, hold on, hold on. It's by far, one, it is by far one of the best books I've ever read. Um, but so I was, I've been reading David Goggins book and then I uh, started reading uh, Matthew McConaughey's new book, which was, it's really freaking good. Oh, it's really? good. Yeah, yeah he's a funny guy. Yeah, well, he um. So I do audio books because you're like I, you know, talking about. I reading, do them right? now too. Yeah, it's because like I do so many different things, right? And the time it takes to sit down and read a book, I don't have it. It's harder, but yeah. I do have time when I'm driving, when I'm working. You live out, in Santa Clarita, yeah. you know. You, 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 you got to drive all. Of- <laughs> no, but my office is in Valencia, so yeah. it's totally fine. But when I'm in the shower, so I can knock out two hours, three hours yeah. a day in a book no, at I, least. I'm in embarrassed to say it i read about one or two books a year yeah. until fitz yeah who started telling everybody you gotta get into audible or whatever yeah so i started about two or three years ago and it's the same thing when i'm driving yep when i'm at the gym running yep. whatever and i'm getting through about 15 i'm almost done moby dick right now for yes. the first time in my life and that's a, a monster that is a monster yeah. but yeah you're right i mean for me i do you know three to five books a month every yeah. single month yeah. on yeah. top of the freaking joe rogan podcast on yeah. top of other podcasts i listen yeah. to i do not listen to my own podcast i cannot it's hard to listen yeah. to myself yeah. right yeah. um he knows that yeah um, but, but, but that being said, it's, it is so amazing that you went through that experience yeah. with Rogan, you know, because it did, it helped transform. Yeah. I mean, it made the book have, you know, an audience it wasn't getting and all these people that I've been meeting, like a lot of famous people now are getting yeah. in touch with me and it's just because of Rogan that they know about the book Yeah, and it wouldn't have been if, uh, I, I didn't, I knew on paper he had a big audience but i really had no idea the impact until i did it yeah i mean it's 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 amazing to see and i think rogan's power is that his ability to it doesn't matter if you're this side or you're that side Mm -hmm. right It, it doesn't matter if you're left right up down or middle it's about who we are as human beings yeah. and this open dialogue. And if we can sit someone down, you know, myself and an Alex Jones, myself yeah. and a fucking Donald Trump, right? It doesn't matter. Mm-hmm. Myself and a Kanye West. If we can sit down and have a conversation, mm-hmm. right? 
we're going to find a lot more in common for the most part. Mm-hmm. I, 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 I truly believe that. And so with his podcast, you see that. Mm-hmm. And so I, I think for me, that's what it connected. Right. Mm-hmm. And for me, um, him constantly talking about working out, taking care of yourself, being yeah. more open-minded, mm-hmm. um, you know, psychedelic drugs, like all these different things. And I think it, it checks a lot of boxes yeah. with a lot of different people. Yeah, I saw a little bit of the Post Malone one. I was like, wow. Those guys. <laughs> and that was the other thing. So yeah. when I sat down with him, you know, I think he likes to get high with his guests. Yeah. And I don't smoke pot I haven't yeah. for a long time, but I've done all kinds of other D-R-U-G-S's. Yes. But not pot, I just don't like it. And he has a big, I don't know if you see it in the thing, but he has a big fat joint and a little plate between you. And he's kind of looking at it in the beginning. And I'm like, so all I have to do is ask and then he'll be able to do it with yes. me. Yeah. And he did, he does ask when you get like, when I got there, he asked if I wanted like you like want a drink or yeah. something. Cause he's a full bar. He did yeah. in, in the other place. And I love to have a nice drink and relax, but I thought I got to be on point with him. It was one in the afternoon that I think I did it. And I thought, if we're doing this three hours and he's as specific as I think he's going to be, I don't want to enjoy myself and start boozing. Yeah, so yeah. I said, I said, no, thanks. I just had some water. But um, when I saw him in post Malone, I think they said they were shrooming. They were the eating mushrooms, smoke. Yeah. All that. I mean, yeah. And he talked to him for like, I didn't watch four hours. I only watched like 10 minutes, 15 yeah. minutes, but like they both were so clearly. Yeah. Crazy. They were fucked up, you know, yeah. but that, but that is the beautiful thing. And I'm the same way yeah. where it's like, you know, if my guest, you know, wants to have a beer, we'll have a beer. If my guest wants to smoke a joint or a blunt, we'll smoke a joint or a blunt, you know, it, but it's, it's up to the, it's up to the guest, mm-hmm. right? Because mm-hmm. I'm not going to go full tilt yeah. you know, if they're not. And at the same time, this podcast did it, it, like all podcasts mean a lot to me, but this podcast meant a lot to me. Oh, uh, it, it really, it really did. He knows my, yeah. my wife knows every, <laughs> my whole family knows uh, that this, you know, I never imagined in a million years when I started this a year ago that I would have met someone like him. But on top of that, had all these amazing guests being able to speak to someone like yourself. Mm-hmm. It's just, um, it, it's blown my mind. And so <laughs> I, I really appreciate oh, you sure. taking the time yeah, yeah. out of your day to come sit with someone like myself and Daniel. We we yeah. really appreciate it. You guys are easy. I mean, it's a lot easier to talk about myself. I mean, that was actually one thing I was disappointed about with Rogan, but I'm glad he, he wanted to focus on the book. I guess it yeah. helped, but I thought he was going to ask me fit stories because I've got great fit stories, you know, <laughs> and I thought he'd be interested in like, I know Zach Galifianakis and yeah. all these guys through fits and, you know, they were around Zach, I went on two bachelor parties with him before his bachelor movie came out that were hungover. (laughs) Fitz's wedding, he he and I were both, you know, at Fitz's bachelor party in Vegas. And then this guy, Mike Gibbons, who does the shows Uh with Fitz, he was, uh, I think, a year after Fitz. We went back again, and that year I was Zach's roommate. And I don't know if you know who Nick Schwartzen is. Of course, yeah, yeah. I was yeah. their roommate for, for three. I mean, that- Big the, mouth. The, yeah, yeah, yeah. The stuff I did with those guys, and I, I was crazier than- that hangover movie you know i I, yeah i can't tell those stories (laughs) i get it but um i was hoping that you know rogan would lighten it up since he knows all those guys but uh he he wanted to stay focused which i guess was good in the end yeah it it was and you know i think it 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 served a purpose for you and yeah it gave the light to your book and your heart and your soul mm-hmm. uh, of 20 years of your life, yeah, you yeah. know, because um, just like look back, like if you wouldn't have done Rogan, how mm-hmm. well 
would have all of this been? Yeah, I don't think anything would have been remotely like this unless something important happened in the case, which was what I was hanging on to then. Yeah. Like, I mean, Leslie Van Houten's attorney is going to court every month trying to get those audio tapes, the Watson tapes, because yeah. he thinks it, and he's right, he deserves to hear them since his clients, you know, she's trying to get, she's gotten paroled three or four times and the governor turns it over. So uh, I keep thinking if something big in the case happens and that will help, but then Rogan came in like an angel and, and yeah, got us a lot of the attention. Yeah. Bless it, man. Because yeah. it's, uh, it, it, opened up my eyes and opened up so many other people's <laughs> yeah, eyes around yeah. around the world so it's um it's it's really cool as as we start to wrap this up do you have anything else you wanted to ask him good sir i do i oh. have two questions for you dun, 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 dun. Uh, chaos has been i'm kind of fascinated by your graph there is that oh, about this th- it is so i actually make <laughs> notes about the podcast for the clips that we use after oh okay the uh but i did write down two questions that i just didn't want to forget uh one was um, chaos has been momentous, I'm sure, in your life. I mean, it's, it's taken 20 years of your life wow. of research. Mm-hmm. Um, but if, if I was to ask you, what do you want to be remembered for? Mm. Is it chaos? Is it something ab- about your research? What, what do you want to be remembered for in life? Uh, hmm. I don't think anybody's ever asked me That's that. A really good question. But now I feel old because they don't ask young people that. Oh no, I, I, <laughs> we've we've had this conversation. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'd be happy if I'm remembered for that book, but I do have another book that has nothing to do with any of this stuff. That's been in my back pocket for. I actually wrote it uh, in mornings for like when the lawsuit started and everything kind of froze, I kept reporting because, but we couldn't take the book out and sell it until the lawsuit was resolved. And that took like a year and a half. So every morning for like a couple hours, I wrote this separate book that had nothing to do with crime. It had to do with something that I went through when I was in my early twenties. It's all finished. Then, you know, I did it in like a year, about eight months. I've never read it. You know, I kept it in the shelf. It's really personal and really, yeah yeah so that's the kind of thing that if i ever go back and read it and 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 you know share it with my agent or something or or now that i have a publisher that would be as important as this was uh and uh but as for now this is this is fine this book (laughs) my second question is um I know we talked a little bit about there was there was a little bit of an obsession for you when you were digging deep in this and and you may not know where that comes from but uh, what was what were your parents like what was that relationship that you had and do you feel that they gave you this drive that really anybody who pushes towards something yeah. especially for 20 years yeah. knows that there's got to be at least one moment yeah. that your head told you why are you doing this one moment every day yeah, that's it. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. every yeah. single day well, no, that was the hardest part because um, I can't remember how much I put in the we. So Dan, when he came on as my collaborator, he said, we need more of you in there. And I'm like, I just want it to be about what I found out. And he goes, but we need the reader to root for you. And we have to show more of your personal life. So we did put in a little bit about my parents. I mean, I couldn't have done it without their support. And, you know, my two older brothers who were the good sons are both attorneys and very accomplished, and, and thank God there's so many attorneys in the family because I got sued by so many, or threatened to be sued. And I mean, I went through an eviction during this, and I had the Errol Moore, Morris thing where it became a legal battle at one point when I backed out of Errol's movie. Um, and I needed, so yeah. thank God I had attorneys in my family to help me with that. But financially, you know, when um, the magazine stopped paying me, and it, it wasn't, 
until I think 2005 that I got my first publishing advance from from Penguin Press. So for three years, I was basically broke and borrowing money from family, my father. And yeah. I mean, if he hadn't done that, I don't, I couldn't have done it. And he, the best thing about him was, I mean, what I loved about him was the first time we talked about the possibility of Bugliosi being corrupt, he said, I'm an attorney. He said, number one, I didn't want to tell you this because I didn't want to bias you. I've never trusted him. He said, in his book, he talks about how he's never lost a, a murder case. He goes, attorneys are not supposed to win every time because people are innocent. You know, you can't help if you get a case where the person's innocent, you have to prosecute it. But it's suspicious if somebody wins every time that they're cheating to do it. Yeah. And he goes, there's something about that man's ego. and his." I didn't realize he was even that aware of him, but I, he did read books by Bullius. So, uh, and, but the more important thing, and I did touch upon this in the book a little, was he never really questioned, they were worried a little bit when it got like a year or two in, but about a year or two in, that's when I started having my first real serious FOIA battle with um, the Bureau of Prisons and the probation when I was trying to get Manson's federal parole file. And that's kind of when I seduced my dad really into it because I asked his, his help on making my letters more legalistic. And he loved it. And he was still working, Shit. but he'd do it at night. So he would take my letters and then redraft them and use the kind of language that they had to respond to. And then he got became a total believer. And there is a scene in the book where I was devastated after my Roger Smith interview, the very first one with him, when I thought I was going to break him like I wanted to break Bugliosi, and I didn't. And I really thought, I don't know how to continue. You know, if I can't get that. And my dad gave me this wonderful little speech on the way to the train about how uh, no matter what I chose, they were going to support me. They had faith in me, and he hoped I was going to. And then that meant a lot. And unfortunately, he passed away like five years before the book came out. Wow. Luckily, my mom didn't, and she's sharp as a pistol. And when the book came out, I mean, it was the most important thing in the world. The day it came out, she went to Barnes and Noble and she was, so it was last year, 92. And she was waiting outside the store for them to open the door for her. Then she, they, she goes in and then my book was at the new books table. Yeah. She said, no, 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 you got to raise it. So she said, I'm his mother. So they put it up much higher. No way. Yeah. And then they took her picture with it yeah. and all the employees came, you know. So ah. she loves this, you know. She's like constantly asking about sales. And when they couldn't get the book at Amazon, she's like, You gotta go to Little Brown and find out. You know, I can I can rent a van and I can go to the the warehouse and take it to where's Amazon? I go, Why you're ninety two, we're trying to get you to stop dry or ninety three, yeah. She was 93. Yeah. Have they always been that supportive? Yeah. I mean, that's the thing. When I was. Love that. So I graduated from NYU with a BFA. It's a very expensive school, you know, and yeah. everybody in my family, I've got great career. My Even my younger sister was doing really well. And I'm driving a horse and carriage in Central Park for eight years. And I'm getting published about a year or two into that. But it wasn't a career until about four years into it. And I actually stayed doing it mostly part time because i loved it and also because it was giving me material for freelance writing stuff and i never trusted the journalism career you know i i knew i would have that to fall back on and you know i often wondered i mean now they're she's tough like on some of my nephews and nieces who are in their 
20s and 30s. I'm like, Ma, you gave me a lot of space. Don't worry about them. They're finding themselves. Yes. And she goes, well, you can't now. You know, now that COVID's happening, it doesn't matter anymore. But I'm like, how did I get away? Why wasn't I ever really? They never, ever told me to stop doing what I was doing in any part of my life, I don't think. Except the bad behavior when I was living with them, you know, in grade school and high school. <laughs> that, that's understandable. But it's a lot you know, when parents do that, it allows creativity. It fosters yeah, creativity. Yeah. And it allows you to be the person that you are today. Yeah. You know, um, you know, big respect to, to your to your siblings. Mm-hmm. But, you know, 50 years from now, 100 years from now, they'll be talking about Tom O'Neill. And, <laughs> and no, they will. I mean, I'm dead serious. Like your your book is, uh, oh, wow. I talk Thank about you. it all the time. I uh, mean, you had, you had, by far the biggest podcast individual in the world, Joe Rogan, bring mm-hmm. you on, talk about it. So obviously yeah. there is validity to what I'm saying right now. And when I said at the very beginning of this podcast, you created a masterpiece. I oh, truly believe that with my full heart. Um, yeah. And it's it's been an honor and experience oh, you. having yeah, you on fun. the show. It's like seriously, fun, yeah. thank you from the bottom of my heart. Uh-huh. Um, and and I look forward to seeing what's next, the movie or yeah. uh, part yeah. two or all of this. I mean, seriously, I, I as as I was telling you, I I can just envision you know the, a movie just based around the the book and yeah. and the struggle and the conversations and this that and the other. I mean, definitely. Yeah. Um, I can't. Well, wait I'm a little. Out disappointed that it's i I talked about this on rogan i guess but that it's a a feature film and not a limited series because i don't know how they're going to get the whole book in two hours but that's the other guy's problem the screenwriter that is true i would say the the best is yet to come for you yeah oh maybe yeah i I would say at least financially i I hope so yeah yeah Yeah, it will (laughs) Uh, but i'd say uh on on another level as far as I, i think there are a lot of people that that do what they have to do until they get to do what they want to do. Yeah. And I guess that's what I'm most excited for. I hope that we can have you back. Then. Oh yeah. Yeah. And after you publish your passion project that's sitting in your yeah. store that you haven't revisited. It's not going to take 20 years. I promise. <laughs> <laughs> all right. All right. All right. All right. Thank you, Tom O'Neill. Thanks, we appreciate yeah. you. And thank uh, you for having me. <laughs> all right. Oh, Oh, hold on. Where can uh, people find you? What's your, what's your Instagram, oh. your website, all that good Good shit. Um, the website is tomoneal.org, I think. If you just Google my name and Manson or Chaos, you'll get the website. I'm so bad. This is the stuff I should know. You should. You should. The Instagram, is, which is where I'm putting the documents and yeah. videos, is, I think, called Chaos. The he's going he's gonna to find it right Tom, now. Tom-oneal.org. Dash, that's right. Yep. Yeah, that's got all, like, all the articles we're talking about. A lot of them are there if yeah. people want to see that crazy stuff. We, we got it pulled up on the screen. We'll make Boom. sure to put it up there. Uh, Look at that. It looks uh, like you have everything in the beginning based on chaos. Yeah, that's just the first couple categories. And then all, actually, uh, excerpts of some of the articles. <laughs> Those are the full articles, yeah. Yeah. I'm going to pull up your Instagram, man. And then the Instagram, yeah, that's the one I really want people to see because that's where they can uh, see the it. documents that we couldn't fit in the book, see videos, audios. The, the one I'm going to put up t- probably tomorrow about the second part of Virginia Cardwell, I think it's the longest uh, yet. It's like 
17 or 18 minutes, and it's pretty intense. I show the documents of Bugliosi Forge and stuff like that. Now, Holy I wish, shit. I, I have to say this, that we are recording and, and posting. Oh, later. so it'll be, yeah, so it'll already be out. It will already be out. Yeah. People should visit your Instagram. There's about yeah. a 17-minute video yeah. uh, of, of something they have not seen or heard before. And they right, right. Yeah, yeah. De- definitely. And, uh, yeah. and I also have it on a Facebook page for the book, but for whatever reason, the Instagram one seems more. Oh, popular. yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Chaos charles manson that is your instagram yeah so it's at chaos charles manson yeah all right all right all right is there anything else you want to say now that i can think of thank you for (laughs) this is fun yeah you're welcome thank you we we really appreciate that all right ladies and gentlemen thank you so much for listening to back to your story have a good night Wowzers, I want to thank you all so much for listening to the podcast. I want to thank Tom for coming on to share his story. What an awesome man. What an awesome podcast. What an awesome book he wrote. Definitely go get it. Uh, It's on Audible, Amazon. Just type in chaos. You'll find it right away. Uh, If you really liked this episode, don't forget to like it, subscribe it, share it with your friends and family. And don't forget, we also do this in a video format. So if you guys want to watch it, head over to our YouTube channel. That's youtube.com backslash back to your story. And remember, every single week or about every single week, we're putting out new content. And I just want to thank all of you from the bottom of my heart. It means the world to me that you guys are taking your time to listen. Uh, Have a great night. Have a great day. Stay safe. Be good out there. Smooches!